Escaped Sapiens. This is a conversation with Steve Callahan, inventor, sailor, naval architect, and author, and a man with one of the most remarkable stories of human endurance and ingenuity of the last half century. Steve survived 76 days lost at sea when Napoleon Solo, a boat he designed and built, was sunk in the middle of the Atlantic during a storm. This is a story that ranges from an adrenaline-fueled escape from a sinking boat to long drawn-out days of starvation, thirst, and internal self-reflection to the joy of salvation and a second chance at life. We discuss facing adversity and picking yourself back up and finding life after tragedy. I found this conversation and Steve's perspective on life refreshing and uplifting. Those who find this conversation interesting should check out Steve's writing, and in particular his book Adrift, which I link in the description below. Enjoy. I I guess there's only a few people on the planet that really have a story like yours. I mean, there's um, John Glennie, uh, and but there's only a, a small handful, right? Well, if you if you. Talking about uh, ocean survival specifically, no, we're a pretty limited club. Um, uh, thankfully, long-term ocean survival experiences don't happen too often. Uh, many of them aren't well publicized because, like, for, for example, I uh, was working, when was it, almost, what, 2010, I guess, or, or 11. Uh, no, uh, no, sorry, 10, 10, 2000. 12 no no it was 2010 sorry i'm gonna go i'm gonna start this all over again in 2010 <laughs> i was working in taiwan and on a, on a film uh, the life of pi mm -hmm. and uh there was a, uh, a a few islanders out in the pacific who had you know they'd set off from their island to go basically pick up girls in the next island and next thing you know the engine quit and they went off you know drifting for 50 something days um, those kinds of stories don't tend to get as publicized as mine for some reason. Us Westerners get a lot more press than, than other people, um, fairly or unfairly. And, uh, but even so, it's still a pretty eclectic club. Um, uh, probably every few years, three, four years or so, somebody goes adrift for a, a month or more, but um, not too many people. Uh, I guess if there's a claim to fame that I have, it's, you know, I, I survived the longest alone in an inflatable raft, but there's a lot of qualifications there for that. <laughs> and, and, and from my viewpoint, and I think most other ocean survivors viewpoints, um, uh, you really can't compare experiences based, especially based on time. I'll tell you a little kind of humorous story. This happened a long time ago, right after Adrift was published. Um, they sent me out, the, the publishers were, were thoughtful enough to send me out on an author's tour, uh, which to me was sort of a mixed bag because I was kind of horrified by the media as well as, as taking advantage of it. And uh, I was giving a press interview, uh, I believe it was for the San Francisco Chronicle. And I kept being asked, you know, is this some kind of a record? This is, this was from the time I landed basically and getting questions from people. Is this a record? Is this a record? And I said, it's not a sporting event. You know? <laughs> and uh, it's not the Olympics. And uh, find this guy, I was explaining to him you know, that it wasn't a sporting event. It wasn't really important the length of time that there are all kinds of variables. And, you know, I said, I said, you know, I could be the first guy to sail around the lighthouse backwards with my pants down. And I guess that would be some kind of notable record. 
And the next day there was a, my publicist called me laughing and she said, have you seen the paper? Because there was a picture of me with a, a caption underneath Callahan says about his experience. It was like sailing around the lighthouse backwards with his pants down. <laughs> so, so they completely misrepresent you no matter what you say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the experiences have, I guess, relevant and important aspects to them, no matter what the length of time. In fact, right. Not long after I, I landed, I talked to, uh, I'm, I was kind of hitchhiking my way up through the Caribbean islands on boats and spent some time in Antigua um, with a couple of sailors there. They were kind enough to put me up on their boat. And uh, this guy had been shipwrecked in the Galapagos Islands for, oh, I don't know, the, the, the boat hit this island, went down immediately. Um, he and the crew were lucky to just get off the boat. Most of them were like naked or near naked. Um, and they're on this volcanic island, their feet are all cut up, there's not any shade, there's not any source of water, uh, nothing. And they were fortunate to get picked up, I won't go into the, the whole story, but, but you know, there's a, <clears throat> excuse me, relatively short experience in yeah. terms of months or whatever, you know, it's, you know, eight, 10 days. But in the, that environment, it was uh, it was every bit as trying as is what I experienced in my view. Have you met any of the? In your, um, you had a duffel bag right during your, your. You had a bag during your ordeal where you had a book written by Dougal Robinson or someone. Did you ever meet him? Uh, I didn't meet him, although we both worked on a survival manual called Survivor by by Michael Greenwald. We were both uh, sort of contributing editors to it and. Um, so I had a, a little bit of correspondence with him, but unfortunately I never got to meet him. I never got to meet uh, Maurice and Marilyn Bailey, who I would have, mm -hmm. I, I really missed the opportunity there because I had been going to England and um, they were in England. Um, and um, I think Marilyn had died by the time I, I could have met Maurice, mm -hmm. but, but I wish I had, I, I've seen some interviews with him. I, I did a, a sort of a podcast kind of thing with a guy who interviewed him at some length and mm -hmm. yeah, just a remarkable individual. I would have loved to have done that. He, he seems like a really nice guy. I, I couldn't get over how nice he seemed watching that interview. Actually, I, I have seen some. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just very thoughtful. But I, that came across in his book as well, as far as I'm concerned. Um, uh, and of course, we all share many feelings and observations mm. when when we're in these situations. And, and there is a lot that I could relate to. And I certainly was extremely thankful to have read uh, the Bailey's book and Dougal Robertson's Survive the Savage Sea. And of course, he also wrote the survival manual that you mentioned that that, that I carried in. They were fundamental uh, in my survival in numerous ways. I mean, I read, you know, their books when I was much younger. Uh, they happened a lot earlier than than my experience in 1982, even, which was a long time ago now. And uh, I, I think one thing that we all get from, I don't know, whether it's listening to a podcast as somebody who's ha had this kind of these kinds of experiences or reading their books meeting them um, is, is that we, we don't just learn 
something in a sort of technological way or detailed way about, you know, how to survive at sea, you know, I mean, like how many people are really going to be in that situation, but it's just inspiration in conceptually because we learn uh, from them uh, some commonalities of, of the survival experience. For example, one of the biggest ones is, is that, um, I've talked to not only from my own experience, but I've talked to, you know, dozens and dozens of survivors through the years of all kinds of experiences. Um, and one real commonality is in the initial stage of the survival experience or one of the initial stages, once the, um, you sort of escape the immediate threat and you're in for the long haul, you know, like maybe your company's gone bankrupt or whatever it is. Um, hardly anyone feels like they can get through it. Uh, it's just mm -hmm. an incredibly depressing time. And um, uh, it's, it's a stage after like the immediate impact and escaping and, and so on that might be called recoil. But a lot of people survive that initial impact. They flee the, the you know, house on fire or whatever it is only to perish in years after uh, or days after even. Um, and it's because it's a it, your whole old life is kind of gone away. It's flushed down the toilet, mm -hmm. and you you kind of look in, around you and go, "How can I possibly make it? Even if I know it's possible intellectually, you just feel like it's impossible." And yet, we all find that we're more res we're way more resilient than we ever thought we could be. Now, it doesn't mean everybody will get through that and and be able to transition into the survival routine, as we call it. But the, um, but but that is a commonality amongst the survivors. Is that it's not like we're like all he men and he women and. You know, we think, oh, we're going to beat everything in the universe, uh, even if we're well prepared for it and so on. Once you're in the thick of it, it's 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 really, really difficult to um, to get yourself psychologically through that period and to end in a physical as well as uh, intellectual way to to get into a period of adaptation where you're, you're basically creating a whole new life for yourself. And Maurice Bailey was beautiful about that um, in his writing, I thought, and it was something I could uh, I, not quite directly relate to, but it's also a commonality. Once the situation kind of comes to uh, to a close when rescue is there or some, some other uh, conclusion, a successful conclusion, um, there's a sort of a bittersweet feeling about it um, amongst survivors that I've met. Um, I, I know, I'm, I'm presuming you know the story of Alive, these guys who are, mm -hmm. well, guys, guys and women uh, who were, who, whose plane crashed in, in the Andes and there was absolutely nothing to, they ended up having to cannibalize, you know, people who had died in the plane crash and just a horrendous situation. And, um, uh, I had done a television show with those, a uh, few of those guys when the movie Alive came out and we were talking in the green room separately and, and, and Nando Parada, I believe is his name, excuse my memory, it's not the best, but um, he was kind of the de facto leader and he and I were talking over in the corner ab about, you know, here we are with all this hoopla and media and society and so on. He said, you know, sometimes I just wish I was back in the mountains again. And the um, Maurice Bailey 
had a section in his book once the you know the, the after a hundred and four months they're out there drifting around and sort of aimlessly in the in the Pacific and finally uh, a, a ship sights them and comes up to rescue them and he has this passage in his book talking about you know he has this sort of bittersweet feeling about it because you know here they had adapted they had created this mm -hmm. whole life and they were sort of kings of their own universe um so there is element we uh, we we discover things from these experiences that are incredibly valuable to us um in in my case i can certainly say that i learned i was a lot stronger than i ever thought i would be um or could be um I, but i also uh, learned a lot about my weaknesses and and things that i really needed to um to work on or compensate for one way one way or the other um which was equally important and you develop these i don't know in my case i think anybody who's read adrift can can see i hope they can see through it that you know i i i'm out there bobbing around the ocean um uh, and it's really not my environment even though i i was a a seaman so to speak and um thought i was i i was a pretty good uh uh sailor and in in voyager but it was clearly pointed out to me I was not a sea creature. And yet through this experience, I felt very, probably more connected in a spiritual way to the universe than I ever have in, in through any other way. So we, we go through these experiences, we suffer, we, you know, they have tremendous costs to us, but, um, it, in the final analysis, we, we, were gifted things that we could only experience through going through these, these, these kinds of experiences. So um, it's just sort of a general thing that I hope people can, a hopeful kind of message to people who are, are suffering, who are going through things that they've never faced before, never imagined they could face in, in extreme difficulties in their life is that somewhere buried in that stuff, there, there is the possibility of, of positive uh, elements that, that, that will emerge. But I mean, your, your situation was very immediate, right? A lot of the troubles that people uh, face today, uh, in some sense, you know, you, you were struggling with, you could die any day. Uh, right. Whereas a lot of the problems that people face in their, their own lives, I, I imagine um, you, you spoke about um, regret while you were uh, in the uh, life raft, regret of having not uh, done certain things in your life or not having succeeded in certain ways. Uh, did those problems, the sort of problems that most people would feel, uh, you know, have in their everyday life, did they seem insignificant to you after your ordeal? Or did, did you know, in, was there, you know, did everything sort of become easy once you were back on dry land and you... <laughs> Uh, it's sort of a mixed bag to be, to be completely honest. And, and a lot of it has to do with time. Um, uh, I, I would say after, a, after a while, you know, I get back into my own bad habits as well as good habits, I suppose. And I can bitch and moan with the best of them. I get very easily frustrated, I, which is true in the raft as well. I could get very easily frustrated and uh, you know, curse the ocean regularly and curse myself and curse everything, you know. Um, but um, also, it's also true that 
that once I once I came ashore, it was like nothing bothered me at all. Uh, <laughs> and that can actually get to be kind of almost dangerous at some times because, um, you know, I think survivors, we figure, oh, right, we've gone through that, you know, like whatever, you know, we're kind of accepting and, and um probably a bit too self-confident uh, in that sort of immediate aftermath stage. And, uh, and we can do risky things without really appropriately measuring the risk. Um, so your risk aversion is much lower now after the event, would you say, or well, have you built it, that back was, up? Well, I was never that risk averse, actually. I, and in fact, that was probably a foolish thing on my part. Um, uh, from a fairly early age, I mean, I was running around in the woods and very comfortable in sort of, you know, in all kinds of wilderness and environments. Um, I was probably much more comfortable in wilderness environments and with nature than I was with people. Um, and I don't know, doing adventures just appealed from to me from a very young age. I I, I think I like most young, not most are all young people, you know, you kind of have a feeling that you're a little bit invulnerable at that age, or you have a very long, many, many years, no matter what happens ahead of you. And uh, so I, I, you know, I think when I was in college, I, I thought, you know, I'm never going to live to age 40 anyway, but I want to do these things before I, I get there. But it, it's really different where the rubber hits the road and you're there and you're starving and you're in pain and you don't have enough water and you have no idea how to get through the day, not to mention through the week or through the months to, to, to reach rescue. So one, one thing that I think is, is a common theme in, in Adrift, actually, and in, in even kept me going at the time is, I don't know, anybody who reads it, you know, I kind of divide myself into these different personalities in a way. Um, there's a, a rational and a physical and an emotional part of me, and they all have different needs and they're all vying with one another at times. And, and, you know, that rational parts coming in there and trying to separate the physical from the emotional the emotional doesn't want to catch any fish, you know, it's really attached to them and honors them. They're spiritual <laughs> creatures, all that. And the physical part of me wants to eat every one it can possibly get in right now. And in the rational parts sort of mediating between the two, and and part of the reason, I mean, that's an abstraction. It's not quite that clear, but but I am very firm in the belief that we're we're very multidimensional creatures, mm -hmm. and that we don't just think one thing, we don't just feel one thing. Um, if we really look into it, that you know. Uh, let's say, I don't know, just abstractly, you know, you're getting divorced, you know, it's really traumatic. And I've been through this myself. So I know it's very traumatic in many respects. You can have anger, you can have fear, you can have uh, envy, jealousy, you can have all these different feelings um, and also relief and, 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 and all of that. And, and the same thing happened with me on the boat. You know, I write about it very early on when the you know, there's an impact on the boat, the boat's going down, I get up on the deck, I'm trying to, you know, free my equipment, getting in, um, there's a part of me that's being Mr. Wimpy Weenie Weiner, and, you know, you know, you're gonna die, you're gonna die, and there's another, you know, sort of rational part of me that's gone through the training and says, you know, shut the hell up and just put, put you aside for now and do what you need to do, a part of me that gets up on the deck and is, there's a movie camera on the back of the of the, of the boat 
that uh, has somehow magically come on. I guess the electric electrical system fused together or something in the seawater mm -hmm. and and I come on and was at, was amused by it. And all these things are going on all at the same time. <laughs> and, you know, survival experts, survival psychologists talk about this, about, you know, this confusion that can put a lot of people into a state of sort of almost catatonic freezing or mm -hmm. spur them into um, uh, completely dysfunctional, panicky behavior. Uh, and there's a certain percentage of the population in general, about 15%, we'll say, I mean, it varies depending on training and all kinds of other things, but there, there's a, a percentage of the population about the same size as those who are panicking and being totally dysfunctional, um, that is able to psychologically split themselves, that they realize there are all these other voices, but they can figure out this is the one I need to follow. This is the one I need to, to listen to for now. And, and most of us, like two thirds of us roughly, uh, can be pretty highly functional in those crises moments, but it really helps. Uh, it re they don't really know what to do. So they will have either dysfunctional behavior or functional behavior, sort of the roll of the dice, uh, unless they have effective leadership if they're if they're in a, in a group and if well, you're on training. your own yeah and if you're on your own hopefully you've had training because we know that training through studies of you know uh oil rig fires and various other catastrophes the training does have a definitive um uh, effect on survival mm -hmm. For, for the listeners, can I take a jump back and sort of sure. uh, slowly enter your story? Because there's people who won't be familiar with uh, the story at all. So I was, I was wondering, <laughs> did you originally get involved in naval architecture because you were interested in going out uh, exploring? And that was sort of a path to uh, adventuring and getting into the world? Um, not well, I, I, I'm not sure exactly how to answer that. I'll, I'll give you, my father was an architect. I grew up drawing. I always liked drawing. And um, designing, I had a, what we can call a pretty decent three-dimensional eyeball. I could look at two-dimensional drawings, you know, in different perspectives and kind of see what the shape would look like in, in three dimensions. That probably came from my parents. And I, you know, putting things together, building things, like I say, growing and also wandering around through, you know, I felt comfortable in kind of wilderness environments. I grew up in a very woodsy area and, and whatnot and started sailing at a fairly early age. And it just all appealed to me, this uh, having experience. Um, in fact, it's sort of prioritizing experience over, I don't know, ownership, if you will. <laughs> um and, and I also, I was a child of the, you know, sort of the child of the 60s growing up as a teenager and into young adulthood through the 60s and the 70s. You know, culturally, that had an, had an effect on me. Um, I was all part of the back to the land movement uh, in a way. Uh, I was running around working on boats, actually started building uh, boats. And that was came from high school. I helped a guy build a boat. And after college, I started, there were a lot of people doing, uh, building their own boats to go off and create a lifestyle, a fairly simple lifestyle at sea. Um, and so um, 
I was involved in that end of things. And my first wife wanted to do organic farming. So we came to Maine and, you know, bought a falling down farmhouse and started working on that and stuff. So I, I don't know, it was all about um, simplicity. And it, I guess one big, really big influence on me when I was, when I was very young, start in, just after I'd sailing and started sailing, uh, I was reading a, a book, um, uh, actually a few books, but one in particular, Robert Manry wrote a book called Tinkerbell. He had put a, taken a 13 foot, 13 and a half foot uh, town class sloop that was built for, in fact, there's actually the picture of it. It's right here behind me. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, the one with the red sail. With the red sail, yeah. Um, it was, you know, basically to sail around a lake or something or other. And he eventually decked it over and sailed it to England with no fanfare, or whatever, uh, you know. And and that was a huge influence on me because it, that and some similar voyages were showed me that boats are an incredible in human inventions. They're a combination of of um, of dwelling and vehicle and art. And all of those things have appealed to me since I was at a very young age. And a very efficient use of materials and space that give you, on, especially for something like Tinkerbell or Napoleon Solo, the 21 foot boat that I built, uh, it's basically your ticket to two thirds of the world plus all the interesting crinkly edges all around the, 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 the most populated parts. Um, at a fairly low cost and low impact on, on the environment. So all these things came together for me through the years. Um, and design was just sort of an extension of that. Um, to be honest, I don't really picture myself as anything. I'm not really a builder, a designer, an artist, a writer. <laughs> I've dabbled in all of these things and somehow cobbled together a living through the through the years. But there, I I am I've been blessed uh, by doing things like being a journalist myself and uh, traveling all over the world, picking you know really smart people's brains and and whatnot to realize that uh, there are a lot of people out there in every every field I've dabbled in that are way smarter and more talented than I am. But I've just been kind of really had kind of a, a, a blessed life in terms of of being able to taste all these different parts and put them together into a, uh, I don't know, a sort of rambling life. Has our technology and the our communication system now made it sort of so that you can't have one of these adventures these days? I mean, if, if you had been stranded today uh, with the technology that's available today and uh, you had, I suppose you still sail and still have a boat, right? If you had your current boat and you were stranded, would you have been 76 days at sea or? It's, it's a lot less likely. Um, you know, um, just to kind of update your viewers who don't, don't know, I mean, I was shipwrecked in 1982 at the time we, f we found our way around the oceans using a sextant <laughs> and um, things like uh, the, the, the internet for the public did not exist. Um, the uh, cell phones did not exist except in a very sort of primitive state in, in, uh, in a few countries, mostly Scandinavia. Um, I was never fond, even today, if I was to go across the ocean, I'm not really big on like sitting there and chatting on the radio. Uh, as, as Eric Taberly, the great Eric Taberly, incredible offshore sailor once, once remarked, if I wanted to talk on the, on, the, on the phone all the time, I'd stay home. 
So, um, I, but the reality is the communications are much better. I had an emergency beacon uh, that would send out essentially an SOS, um, which was a fa fairly new bit of gear back then and was only being monitored by aircraft. Now they're all being monitored by satellite. Not only are they being monitored by satellite, but you register it and they know exactly who the signal comes from. And, mm -hmm. and they're much more accurate than they, than they were. Now that doesn't mean they don't malfunction. It also doesn't mean that there aren't parts, there are a lot of parts of the world, in fact, that are so remote uh, that even if your boat goes down and somebody gets a signal, there may be nobody within days and days and days of, mm -hmm. of, of re being able to reach you. Um, a, a little story about that. We were, I was helping a, um, a friend sail a, a, a kind of wacky uh, multi-hull boat uh, called a proa, uh, which doesn't tack and back and forth like sort of Western boats do, but it actually changes ends and the whole rig turns around and so on. Uh, it's, a, it's a sailing canoe. And we went sailing off from California, eventually him all the way across the Pacific. I went as far as Tahiti and we went out for two weeks and saw absolutely zero sign of human habitation of the earth in that two weeks. We in, I mean, it'd probably be different now. There will be even more trash than there was then, but we didn't see any <laughs> trash. We didn't see any contrails. We didn't see any ships. We didn't see anything. And, um, you know, the realization, which I often talk about, is that we, you know, we who go offshore, you put, shove offshore and you experience an incredible amount of freedom, but you also have total responsibility. And, mm -hmm. and you are, because you are more isolated from humankind than an astronaut circling around the globe. I mean, at least they're in constant communications and all of that. And, you know, they're constantly passing over land and, uh, you know, constantly seeing human habitation everywhere. But but the sea is a very empty wilderness. And uh, this is what I wanted to ask you. I wanted to ask you if you still saw the ocean as, you know, a great frontier, or whether, you know, the ball had shifted to now, you know, Mars exploration or the deep sea or something like this. So you, you still very much see uh, this is an active uh, place where I could go get a boat and explore and see something that really no, no one else has seen before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, well, I don't know about nobody seeing before, but um, it, it, experiences are very, you, you know, personal and very unique. And I, I think that whether you go to, you know, I, I again, I, I kind of have a, f a fondness for wilderness environments because I think you have an outward journey, but you also through that outward journey also have a an, an inward journey. And you know, you reflect on things in different ways than you do when you're like surrounded by people and having all this input all the time and, and all of that. And uh, but the the sea itself is is pretty unique in that it's still a pretty um, it's a pretty wide open space and <laughs> and um, nobody's going to be there to get you. Well, maybe somebody will be there to get you out of the trouble you get yourself into, but you can't count on that. And, you know, it, it see, I find Murphy's law is optimistic that not only can everything possible that can go wrong, go wrong, but even the things that can't possibly go wrong, will figure out <laughs> going wrong. 
and and you're responsible for dealing with that and keeping yourself going and and that gives you a different kind of relationship to um to everything to the universe and certainly if you're with mates and whatnot you know you're you're literally depending on one another for your for your life and um so it, it you you develop different relationships with people with yourself and most importantly probably with with the universe uh i mean i'm a I had a philosophy background, and so I like to think about abstract things um, and how they apply to concrete things. Um, and so it gives me space out there. Um, I, I actually haven't been able to get offshore now for some years. Um, uh, the last, I don't know, eight years or so because of personal health mm -hmm. issues. But um, and I miss it terribly, but even just going down to the shore and looking out on it, I, I find inspiring just the same as I do looking up at the, at the stars, um, that my wife and I are both real fans of astronomy. So when you talk about all these environments, the deep ocean, the surface of the ocean space, they all offer me a kind of a similar feeling about the universe and, in and our relationship to it. So in terms of, uh, your big voyage where you, you know, where you took out uh, Napoleon solo or is it solo Napoleon, Napoleon, Napoleon solo. solo yeah. uh, was that your, f yeah. was that your, f sorry. No, it was a, it's just a TV personality from when I was a kid. Oh, I see. Yeah. The, was that, was that, um, was that one of your first, uh, you know, solo trips out, you know, was this, had you done previous, had you crossed the Atlantic previously or was this, no, that was, it was the first time. Yeah, that was, that was the first crossing of the Atlantic, but I, I always, I took baby steps all along the way. I started sailing when I was, I don't know, 13, 12, 13. I'd been messing around in boats since I was a very young boy, like, I don't know, eight or 10 or something. My brothers and I would whack together these like little barges and, and go on a pond behind our house, you know, and do little, wars with one another and stuff and hmm. when uh i started sailing uh it just felt really natural to me it really felt i felt at home there uh and the guy my sail my mentor um was a, a wonderful man and would let me become a full partner on the boat really from a pretty early age and um by the time I was 16, he had this 25 foot boat that we would, you know, go voyaging off. And we had already been taking trips like from Boston up to Maine and stuff. So they're offshore, you know, a couple of hundred miles or something or other, you know, it takes you a couple of days to get there and, uh, and those sorts of things. And he would, he started loaning me. He, he just said, Oh, well, take the boat, take your friends out, whatever. And um, so I would take friends out sailing or I would borrow the boat and start single handing when I was, before I was out of high school, I taught myself celestial navigation as a senior project. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I was helping a guy build a boat. I was completely obsessed. Um, so it, I, and I started sailing, doing off real offshore trips, like the States to Bermuda in, I don't know, seventies, early seventies, I guess. And, um, and I just really love that doing the, you know, these offshore passages were fantastic. So I was doing quite a lot of that. And I had done, you know, I'd single handed to Bermuda and then a friend met me there on Napoleon solo specifically. And then we sailed the rest of the way uh, to England, the two of us. Um, I always preferred double handing uh, to single handing, uh, but um, I'm okay, I guess, by myself. 
But so you had already seen large storms. You you were okay, already yeah. confident with repairs, and so it wasn't like it was your first radio. Oh no you, no no you, no, not at all. But I wasn't. I mean, I, I you know I thought I was you know fairly experienced, but I, I was far from being you know and and that it's like everything else. You know, everybody blows records away all the time, and and you know now there are these young bucks, especially in France, where sailing is really a national sport. It's like football or baseball in the United States or soccer, football, your football in in the UK or Germany. Um, you know, the the newer you know, it, it's always getting better and better and better, you know, whether it's, you know, what you see in the Olympics today is just like blows away what people were capable of doing because you, you learn more and you're, you're standing on the shoulders of people who came before. So at the time I was relatively experienced, but now there are these, you know, these, these sailors who are, you know, 30 years old have been around the planet, like, you know, eight times and stuff like that. It's just, so it, it's different. And certainly I've had since, I lost Napoleon solo way back then, you know, I, I, you know, 80% of my experience has been since then, you know, spent over 50 years messing around mm. in boats. But so at the, at the time you felt fairly confident though, and you, but you, you had damaged the boat just before you had a, the, the big sinking, right? You, you were going to take part in a race and you, yeah, I mean, went like, you know, stuff happens. I, well, I made a mishap to, immediately leaving Newport, I, I, I was eating breakfast and I was like, oh, the wind was coming up some. And I was like, oh, I'm going to take down that sail. And I screwed up and took the mast down. So I had to jury rig it and sail it back to Newport and put a new mast in it. And, and, uh, and then we set off and we had a, a pretty uneventful trip to England. And at that time, you have to realize, you know, there had been some boats, you know, there'd been a, num a number of boats, I guess, probably 20 or 30 boats, probably that size that had been across an ocean. Um, but it's, it's, it's still a pretty small club. And mm -hmm. um, we had a wonderful trip. We had went through one gale where we got knocked down pretty badly as the boat, you know, went over more than 90 degrees. There was, you know, green water across the hatch and, and whatnot. We were both inside at the time, fortunately. And, uh, but the boat popped up and it was fine. And then we got to England and it was, you know, typical crappy North Atlantic conditions for the fall, <laughs> coming into the fall and uh, lots of storms, of course, the, across the mid latitudes. And um, one sailor actually got killed on the way to the race uh, in a big storm that we managed to miss. Another sailor we'd met in Bermuda had, uh, uh, left a little after us and Hurricane Emily had run him over and he got there, was terribly beaten up and, uh, and so on. So, and then we started in the race, which started sort of not quite in a gale, you know, it was okay when we actually started, but a gale was coming up and um, a number of boats were lost totally. And Napoleon Solo had, uh, had some damage, um, I'm not sure whether we, I hit something in the water or whatever, you know, there's all kinds of junk out there floating around, you know, mm -hmm. barrels and, and trees and <laughs> all kinds of stuff. I'm telling you, it's, it's just an amazing amount of stuff that you can hit. And uh, I withdrew in La Coruña on the North coast of Spain and spent a couple of weeks there um, uh, sort of repairing things along with a number of other boats that had withdrawn from the race that had pulled in there. And then uh, from that point on, I was just basically cruising and I, 
the the original aim was to circumnavigate the North Atlantic to come mm -hmm. to you know sail from East Coast U.S. to England, which was the big goal because it was something I'd wanted to do since reading Tinkerbell, Robert Manry's book, when I was thirteen or something, and then. From then, because the mini transat race at the time went from Penzance to uh, the Canary Islands and then to Guadeloupe, you kind of complete most of the circuit. And I figured, well, I'll get to Guadeloupe. My marriage had fallen apart anyway. There was really no reason for me to go home. And uh, I had a friend in or a guy I met in Newport, actually, before I left, uh, who lived in St. Croix, and they had started a boatyard there uh, building uh, multi-hulls and in which was a, a big love of mine so I figured well maybe I can get a, a job with Roger because I'll definitely be broke and you know I'll be living in my little boat and whatnot so that was all part of the plan uh, and by the time I withdrew from the race and cruising down Spain Portugal out to Madeira down to the Canaries it was it was just a, a, a really a nice kind of cruise and uh, then the the easy part of the trip was supposed to be from the Canary Islands to the Caribbean because it's all downwind with the trade winds and, and all that kind of stuff. But of course, the best laid plans of idiots like me always go to awry. So, so what happened? So you're on the way between, so you'd gone from uh, the East coast of the States across to England for a race, then you bailed out of the race and went down to Spain and then to the um, Canary Islands. And then on the way back to, to, I guess the Caribbean, this is where you had a big storm, right? And where well, things went south. Yeah, there was a there was a gale, but you know, like as you mentioned, you know, uh, Napoleon Solo and I had been through you know several gales together, um, probably four or five at that point, and uh, and she'd always done well, so I wasn't particularly worried. Of course, I had repairs that I'd done in Spain, and so I kept. You know, I got about, I left the Canary Islands on January 28th, I want to say, um, of 1982 and uh, got about 800 miles west of there, which puts me kind of in the middle of the Atlantic, a little bit closer to Africa, but for all intents and purposes, middle of the Atlantic. And um, a low pressure system was coming through a bit of a gale. I had about three meter waves or so significant wave height, you know? Um, and so I kept getting up and kind of looking around at the boat, looking at all the joints in the boat and, you know, even getting up on the deck and, you know, making sure all the rigging was good and all of that. And then I'd lay down and I'd get up a while later and, you know, these waves were kind of smacking the side of the boat and, but we were making pretty good time and I had shortened sail and, and felt okay about it. And then I lay down and, oh, I don't know, probably around midnight-ish local time, um, there's a big bash on the side of the boat and big hole and water came like really pouring in. And I, I knew immediately that the boat was doomed. Mm -hmm. And so I basically, the, the short story of a drift is, is I got out there in the middle of the Atlantic, something hit the boat. I bailed out um, before it sank and uh, spent the next two and a half months learning to live like an aquatic caveman. That's basically <laughs> the story. But so you immediately knew the boat was going down. You, you, you just woke up and water was pouring in. There was no doubt in your mind that this was a problem. 
Oh, oh yeah, definitely. I had had watertight, you know, the boat was designed uh, with good rewriting characteristics because I figured a small boat, you know, any boat can get turned upside down in bad conditions. Um, and so I sort of planned on that. I figured any 21 foot boat that's going to go across the ocean at least once and probably hopefully twice, uh, there's a good chance it's going to go upside down at some point or, or pretty close to it. So I had it designed in a way that it would rewrite uh, pretty well. Um, I had watertight compartments designed into the boat, but they weren't, it's, it's such a small boat. It's like, imagine living in a, in a camper van or something, you know, like a VW microbus or something like that. It's basically that kind of space. You can't, you can't stand up anywhere in it or anything like that. Um, and so, you know, making watertight, you can't make the whole boat watertight compartments because there's no place you can't move around in it then. So, I had some, they were supposed to contain damage on the ends, especially like if I hit something forward or something like that. But this has seemed to be a blow that came from the side and hit mm -hmm. the main compartment. So it wasn't really designed to stay afloat in that situation. And, and I knew it was kind of doomed, but fortunately for me, it, it's the boat stopped almost immediately and nosed under basically the forward two thirds of the boat were actually underwater, but the back end of it, was it developed a little bit of an airlock, a little mm -hmm. bit of a bubble of air inside, uh, as well as the aft compartments, uh, watertight compartments and, and all of that. And so it was just above the water, but the problem was that these, these large waves coming by were every single one essentially was washing over the boat, which made it impossible to stay aboard. And I was hoping to stay tied to it in until morning, at least where I could see things. And I, I took the chance to get back on board because I said, well, if I do get separated, you know, I've, you know, I, I know there's some equipment in the raft, but I have a bag, a ditch kit, um, basically with all kinds of goodies in it, little important, important pieces of equipment that I wasn't able to get out initially. And so I dove back down into the boat and, got the bag out, got a piece of cushion and, um, a, um, a, a sleeping bag and, and stuff like that. But I was hoping to stay tied to it. Cause I also had five gallon jugs of water. That's like a 40 day survival ration of water right there. Um, I had bags of, of food and, and all that kind of stuff, but I got broken away from the boat just before morning, unfortunately, because it was so, so rough. Yeah, it was very rough. It was like being in a, it was almost like being in an auto accident every few minutes because the, 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 the boat is, is, is like a very effective sea anchor. Mm -hmm. It's not moving much of anything. It's sort of like a whale sitting there. You're tied to this whale and the raft is bobbling on the top of the surface. So every wave that was hitting the raft was, was just like collapsing it and, uh, I was afraid that the raft might get torn to bits. So uh, like everything else, it's another theme and or other themes in a drift um, is that, um, you know, every there's sort of yin yang balances in everything and um, the paradox and surrounds you everywhere. Dilemma surrounds you everywhere. Irony surrounds you everywhere. And so, you know, and I'm, I, I finally this wave hits and there's this, relative peace in the raft it felt you know it's just like mm, I, you know i poke my head out and see that i'm drifting away and it's like oh damn i'm in the <laughs> middle of the ocean and you know this is what i've got and it's not looking very pretty for your future but on the other hand had i 
stayed tied to the boat, it, maybe the raft would have gotten, gotten ripped up before morning and uh, I'd be left in the middle of the ocean with no boat and no raft. So, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. everything's a mixed medicine. But so when you first woke up, was the boat just, I mean, it was filled with, it was filling with water. So did that make the boat still or was it sort of really chaotic inside the cabin? The lights were out, I'm, I'm guessing. Uh, yeah. Was it really difficult to get out into the lifeboat to start with? Uh, yeah, it was a challenge. It was a bit of a challenge. Um, yeah, like I say, you know, it's imagine standing in front of a fire hose. Yeah. That's kind of what was coming at me in the boat. So, yes, it's dark inside. There was moon. There was a moon. There was a lot of scud and stuff, you know, in the sky, but there was moonlight. Um, and I'm used to you know, wandering around at night with no lights and stuff. In fact, I don't really like lights at night unless you absolutely need them. So that was okay. It, was, it wasn't a matter of seeing because a lot of it is just sort of feeling anywhere and I knew exactly where everything was. Uh, but the it was filling up with water so quickly. I was like trying to free my ditch kit, but I the water was coming up over my head and I said, oh, that's it. The boat is going straight down. And if I don't get the life raft off, I'm done. So I got up on the deck and it's, you know, <laughs> the motion is, is pretty incredible. And like I say, all the waves are washing over it too. So you're trying to stay on this, you know, it's, it's in a bit of a circus ride and you're trying to be functional getting the raft off. And, you know, you're supposed to throw this thing, which weighs a hundred pounds, you know, into the ocean for inflation. And I, I don't know, it's, it's a bit chaotic, uh, obviously, <laughs> but um I had gone through the motions a lot and I had spent enough time offshore where I dealt with lots of issues, lots of problems with boats breaking in various ways and stuff like that and having to deal with it. So I think I was pretty good at doing, dealing with that, to do the psychological splitting, to focus on what I was doing and, and, and to get off. Um, That was okay. That was, that's sort of escaping the immediate threat. The The next stage of it, which is the recoil stage of which I, what I call disorientation and fear is a totally different matter. Um, that's when I look out, you know, the next day, you know, well, first of all, it was stormy for several days. So it was a matter of just hanging on. Uh, but then, you know, you're, you're in this incredible ocean that, you know, looks like swimming pool clarity, just beautiful but devoid of life initially, um, you realize I'm like 2000 miles away from where I am, am going to drift, whether I like it or not, it's going to go with the, with the currents and with the wind. And that's going to be the Caribbean islands. And that's if I'm lucky enough to not miss them, get swept up in the Gulf stream and end up back in England or something. And so there, the challenges are just immense. And in that period of time was, you know, kicking back basically and trying to conserve energy and, and, and stay warm, actually staying warm was really, really a big problem for the first half of the voyage. And at night and during the day was okay, but at night it was, it was cold enough and I was wet. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the time initially and overall in the voyage, I was probably wet half the time. So and you, you start breaking out and, you know, salt water sores with which in a week they end up being, they started off like, you know, little, you know, um, blisters on the skin and then they break open and you end up with all these open ulcers all over your skin, which is, you know, being soaked in 
salt water if you're lucky or when it dries out encrusted salt <laughs> everywhere <laughs> being ground into these things not very pleasant and then starvation you know starts starts in in uh uh, being very limited in water supply, uh, so, which is even worse, uh, of course, because that, you know, being without water can kill you in days, being without food can kill you in weeks. Um, so you don't worry about the food initially, but uh, the water was a real, a real problem. And in hypothermia, losing body heat was, was a priority. So I'm starting to go through the motions of survival. But in the meantime, that uh, big part of my mind is, you know, beating me up about, you know, oh, you were horrible at relationships. You blew your marriage. You were never good at dealing with money or business. You never succeeded at really doing anything of, of value to yourself or anybody else for that matter. And so my life just seemed like a very empty waste. And in that I would have let down a lot of people. Um, and, um, and here, this is the result of it. All for what, you know? So yeah, it's it's hard to get through that uh, through that stage. But slowly, I you know there is that rational part of me that says you know shut up, <laughs> start doing what you need to do, pump up the raft, start keeping a log. I, I you know so there was that part of me that was was from the very beginning. Uh, taking the attitude that it wasn't the end of the voyage, but it was just the continuation and a much more humble craft. And so I would do <laughs> shipboard, shipboard routine stuff. You know, I get to keep my log and navigate and um, um, exercise. I had been doing sort of yoga exercises and even modified yoga, yoga exercises on board the boat. Cause of course it's moving around all over the place. So you have to modify things. And so I, I developed my own routine for the raft, which I did every day unless I was like completely out of it and, uh, and those sorts of things. So I, 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 I would go through the routine and then learning how to fish, learning how to produce water, all these other things. Um, it's, it actually, can be it early on. It wasn't even a full-time job. Actually, after I adapted, it took me a couple of weeks. And then of course I'm sitting here going, God, how complicated have I, how do we all make our life? I'm, I'm living in the middle of the ocean in a rubber tent, you know, working for a few hours a day, you know, <laughs> what, what, what am I thinking about going back, you know, to civilization? But then of course, things break down more and more and more and in survival really is it, it ends up being kind of a, uh, um, full-time job. So originally, so you, you get into the, the rescue craft and then you, you dive back into your boat in, under the water to get various items uh, at the very start. And then, so the next day when you wake up, what do you have on you? You've got your sleeping bag. What was the list of items that you had to survive? Uh, it's quite a list, actually. I, I won't go through it all, but I, you know, I, it's, it's listed out in, in a drift that exactly what I had, but there were some, you know, I had this, this bag, which was, I don't know, probably, mm, I guess maybe 16, 18 inches wide by a couple of feet long by eight or 10 inches high. That was full of gear. Um, I had a, you know, Tupperware box that I could catch, you know, water in or whatever. And that house, things like I had these little pads of paper, uh, dime store pads of paper and a pencil, uh, which I consider one of the most important survival tools that I had, um, especially psychologically. Mm -hmm. um, 
then I had, I, I had just bought a little teeny spear gun in the Canary Islands that just basically fit in that bag. And that would provide me with virtually all of my food. I had a couple of solar stills plus one in the raft. Uh, these were producing second world war, these sort of balloon like things. I'm not going to go into the details of explaining them exactly. Cause it's kind of complicated, but let's just, I guess each one I learned, well, I learned several things and especially in the last 40 plus years is I've never found anybody else to get one to work in the real environment. And the second is that once I figured out how to use them, I had to use them not as directed and each one had its own personality, which mm -hmm. they needed tending to all the time. And if I was lucky, I would get maybe a cup and a half, two cups, maybe in a day or something like that. Probably a cup in, you know, what is it? A pint. I mean, it's a couple of cups, I guess, is is what I would live on um, mm -hmm. for the next two and a half months. And each one would wear out and so on. So anyway, those were in there. I had uh, bits of line. I had Dougal Robertson's survival man manual, which was incredibly helpful. I probably read like 20 times. Um, even though I, uh, I knew it, but it's just, just to read off. Oh, what was that? Now I, I got to make sure about that. Cause you're not <laughs> sure you're thinking right all the time either. Um, I had, you know, a, a pump to pump up the raft, which needed to be done all, all the time. I called it the beast because it's really a foot pump, but you can, in a raft, the only way you can use it is squeezing it with your hands, which isn't, and I had to do this like hundreds of times <laughs> a day sometimes. Um, um, so I don't know, a few sponges and I had a, a heap of closed cell foam. Closed cell foam is important because it's, it doesn't absorb water. And that was what I was using for cushions in, in Napoleon Solo because I figured well, it's going to get wet in there. And they're stiffer. But the good thing is they don't absorb water. So you're not sitting on a complete sponge all the time. And I had a sleeping bag, which was quite wet a lot of the time. Um, but it, it did provide some insulation, also um, um, a space blanket um, and whatnot. And those did serve me well. I was cold a lot of the time, but I, obviously I, I made it. So <laughs> it was good enough. So when did you start fishing? Was, did you immediately have access to fish or did it take some time before... It took a while. I mean, the, really, you know, the core story of Adrift is is that I'm just kind of this this idiot, clumsy human observer of this incredible environment that evolves, and of which I am blessed to be a part of. Um, and it's about my relationship with this environment and being a part of it, not a dominant part of it for sure, but a a small interactive part. And it's about the magic and the mystery of the of, of this environment, which is really mostly symbolized through the Dorado, a also called Mahi Mahi in places and whatnot. They're fairly large fish that are found in temperate waters around the world. They're incredibly beautiful. Um, I found incredibly smart, actually. Um, I know that a lot of scientists in recent years have been discovering that fish are smart. And I like, well, haven't they talked to any fishermen in the last 2000 years? Um, the, anyway, these fish started showing up within, I think, the third day or so. And eventually the school would form around the raft, follow it. I felt like they used it as a point of, you know, you're in this you're in this this you know the world's largest will you know mm -hmm. desert really that but as far as they're you're all moving with the current but 
as far as if you're if you're in that current, you know, everything's moving. It's like being on everything being on a, a moving sidewalk. You're you're kind of all going at the same speed. So it's like everything's sort of sitting still. But there are no signposts or anything out there. And I found that the Dorado were social creatures. Um, uh, and I think and so they would come and gather around the raft and they would become more and more and more of them. There were probably over 50 fish by the time I landed on Mar hmm. in, off Marie Gallant. And, um, you know, barnacles would grow on the bottom of the raft and that attracted trigger fish, uh, which was actually the first fish I, I, I caught, uh, was smaller. The Dorado I, I tried fishing for, and initially, you know, I'm shooting at them with the gun, you have refraction problems and stuff like that. So it, it took a, quite a while. It took me two weeks really before I started catching fish. Um, and there, there was a lot of practice involved. And then I thought, then they scared the hell out of me because, you know, the first fish I caught, they seemed to have a social reaction to it. It was like being, I don't know if you ever saw the old movie, Hitchco uh, Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, but it was kind of like that, the fish, and they were like determined to get me and they're just relentlessly smacking into the raft and whatnot. And these fish are pretty big. They you know, I, there, there are cases of them being landed in boats and knocking bits of the boat apart. And, uh, and, and I'm fishing for them with a spear and an inflated raft in the middle of the Atlantic. So it was kind of disconcerting at times. They were really pretty powerful. And if I, the, the floor of the raft is just like the 16th inch of reinforced rubber. Um, yeah. So you're feeling every little bubble that goes across and they would constantly hit the bottom and the big male sometimes like if I if you press down on it you know an elbow or a knee that's what they'd aim for so I had to be careful to keep my head up off the bottom of the raft because it'd be just like if I came along and slugged you as hard as I could in the face um, so I try to stay away from that but eventually I could use that technique because um, the power strap to the spear gun would disappear eventually um, and so I needed to get them even closer and I used this bumping that they would do to the bottom of the raft. My advantage, I pushed my knees down in front of the, there was like a, a little opening in the tent that covered the raft. And, uh, I pushed my knees down and they'd bump into that and kind of slide out in front. And it would give me a, you know, I had this whole technique I had to develop, but it, I have a split second in order to aim and fire and hopefully catch a fish, which would normally take me a few days before I actually was successful, but you learn patience. So they, they began that behavior after you had caught one of them. Well, they do hit the, but they do rub. We're not really sure why they do this behavior, but they do rub up against the um, survival craft and other people have, have noted this as well. Oh. Uh, but what I mean, it was like, after I caught the first fish, they seem to go into this kind of frenzy and, I, I don't know how many they were, but they're, you know, in terms of, of actually smacking into the raft, because I'm inside most of the time, but it was like, bam, bam, bam. They just wouldn't leave me alone. And I was freaking out about it, you know, just firing the spear gun, just to kind of drive them away and stuff like that, which was just nonsense. But, you know, you're not always acting yeah. the most rationally in those situations. Which is probably why it broke eventually. What, the spear gun? Yeah. I don't know. I like I say, it's a really tiny little frail. Actually, you can see that. Yeah, I was going to ask, is that the one on the wall behind you? Back there, up up here. That's it. 
and that's all tied together as you can see and, and whatnot. I go into detail about all that stuff in a drift, but um, you don't need to know all the details, but it, it had this whole evolution uh, to the end. Uh, even the tip of it, you know, there were one point I, uh, you know, these fish, they, they, as I say, they're kind of symbolic about a lot of the magic and the mystery of the sea and um, certainly their dominant position over me really in our relationship, our, our love death relationship with one another. And uh, at one, you know, cause they, they sort of provided, they provided me with virtually all of my sustenance. They became my friends. I could know many of them individually. Um, they just were incredible to me, spiritual creatures. They, um, at, at, in the end, the, the final part of the story, of course, is they, they, they actually bring my salvation. Uh, but in the meantime, they also look, almost kill me. At one point, they break the spear. That's one reason why it's tied all together like that. They broke the spear off the uh, and and turned it around and rammed it into the bottom tube and ripped a big hole in the bottom tube, which just about killed me. And uh, and I had a temporary repair that was working for a little bit, and I was going to try to fish again and. I, I spear another one and I did this kind of little break dance in the water and swam off. And I looked at the end of the spear and I'm dumbfounded that it had unscrewed the tip of the spear and left with it. So they're like a butter knife and something tied onto the, to the end of the spear for the point. So it had a big evolution. When you tore the boat, how did you fix it? I, I, I was looking at a few other um, interviews and, and, and things about how you repaired the whole, I, I, I don't understand at all how you managed to repair uh, this hole. It's, it's a little diff. It's pretty difficult to explain verbally. That's why like, yeah, in a drift, you know, go look, go. If you look in a drift, it'll show you exactly. And it actually has a photo of what the repair looks like. Mm -hmm. Um, it looks like a mess, but, um, in essence, if you think of the tear as a mouth and, but think of your mouth as being inflated with two and a half PSI of, of, of ox oxygen as well, which is pretty stiff. Like, you know, it's not quite, you know, car tire stiff, but it's pretty stiff. And so, you know, you blow as hard as you can, you're going to blow out your mouth. So I, first of all, I tried to put mm, like a tongue of foam, closed cell foam in it and wrap it around the mouth, you know, pucker like that. And it would just stretch, you know, as soon as the pressure would come on, it would stretch the mouth off and the tongue would fall out and, you know, and, and then all the bubbles come out and I was back in the same position. And uh, then I tried external pressure patches across it. I did all kinds of stuff and just tie it tighter and tighter and tighter. I was wearing a hole in my arm from, you know, jerking on this thing, pressing against the raft. And it was a nightmare and I would get it to last and get the repair to last for kind of an hour or two hours or a few hours. And then it'd blow out. And it was like, mm, after, after days and days of this, it was, um, I, I just didn't think I had any more strength to, to deal with it. I kind of collapsed in the raft and felt like, no, this is the end and kind of slapped myself for going, you know, started crying and whatnot. And then you know, so sort of beating my, another part of me beating myself up and saying, you know, snap out of it. You got to deal with this. But it's like, I don't care anymore. I just don't have any more strength. And, and um, but then I was kind of going through all the equipment I had in the bag and 
I'd, I'd had for, I don't know why, but I had this like utensil kit, you know, a little stainless steel camping utensil kit in there. And uh, which included the knife that ended up on the spear and, uh, and, a, and a, a fork. I was like, I don't need any freaking fork, you know? And so I was like, oh, guess what? It's stainless steel and it's a pen. You know, one, one kind of unifying concept uh, amongst uh, survivors is that we stop thinking about things in their normal context, that we look at them for their prime qualities instead. And that can either be a person uh, your job, whatever job you had doesn't really mean anything. It's what are you good at, you know? And if your job required you to be good at mathematics or something, then that might come in useful. Um, but, and so in the same way, this fork was, you know, okay, it's stainless steel, it's stiff, relatively stiff, and it's a, without the without the, the tines on it, I can break those off. It's a pin. And so I could take that mouth and drive, cut, some, that's another unifying concept. Sometimes you need, actually need to make more damage in order to fix something. And so I cut a hole in the top and the bottom lip and put the tongue in, ram that pin down through. And that gave me something stable that I could mm. wrap around lines behind. And it didn't matter how much pressure was coming out, it couldn't force the lines off the pin unless that pin broke. Mm -hmm. And, um, in the end, that it actually improved the bottom tube. It, it ended up holding air better than the top tube. <laughs> I don't know why, but it, it was kind of a, kind of a little miracle. And and this is another thing about you know the kind of the survival experiences that you go through. You know, it's really normal life. It's just on you know normal life on steroids, as we say. Um, you have problems you deal with and successes and you go through ups and downs, but in, in, uh, a survival situation, the ups are, are, are incredibly high and the downs are incredibly low and one can follow the other in moments. Uh, so, you know, the hole in the bottom of the raft, I'm going through this really desperate low. And then, um, when I actually find the solution to the bottom tube i am totally wasted but I, it's probably the highest i've ever been in my life you know i felt like I, ah king of the universe <laughs> brilliant and you know i i designed a boat one of the first designs i i designed was uh uh i called it mr toad it was uh a little catamaran a little cheap catamaran and um it's on the wind and the willows character. Cause I could always relate to Mr. Toad, who's a character in that. And you know, it's a children's book. It's a brilliant children's book. Anybody who hasn't read it should read it. Cause it's great for adults. It's great for kids. It was one of the first books I ever read offshore. A friend read it to us. And uh, Mr. Toad is this, you know, all full of bluff and blather and, you know, oh, I'm Mr. Toad, the brilliant Mr. Toad, the wonderful Mr. Toad. And then two minutes later, he'd, he'd get himself into all kinds of trouble, you know, by being too proud or, or, or whatever. And, uh, and then it was, oh, poor Toady, Mr. Toad, you're so stupid. You're so, oh, how could you be such a failure? And um, that's, been my life to a large degree and especially <laughs> in, the, in the raft it was like that you know I, I was definitely a Mr. Toad where you know one minute it's like oh woe is me you know and then the next minute is like yes you're brilliant and, uh, did you have any so I'm, I'm guessing repairing the raft was what your key moment of brilliance was there any was there anything that 
after the fact you thought of that you went, I should have thought of that. You know, oh, your rescue. Oh, God. Well, <laughs> yeah. What's yeah. any main ones? Uh, well, there's one I often, often tell. And in fact, I, I, I think I've, I, I finally included, I wrote a new like introduction to the book and, uh, uh, it included the story. I, it was a while after I'd been back and, uh, well, of course I came back in 1982 and it took me four years or so to put my life back together and to write this book. Um, and then I was doing sort of media tours and, and, and all of that in when it was published in 1986 and uh, in 1987, it was one, one or the other. And I was doing a radio show with um, some kids in New York, you know, there because a lot, a lot of kids like it, you know, it's an adventure tale, especially for, 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 for younger people. And uh, you know, it can kind of be read on that level. And this young precocious man about 10 years old gone on on the the phone and and said well you know i i'm a little confused you know i read in your book that um you were never successful at catching the dorado with uh with hook and line and i said yeah you're right you know because i tied the first one i had this piece of line and the dorado just bit through the line so then i went through all my gear and i found a piece of wire and I tied that on there to use as a leader and the Drado hit the, hit the lure. And as soon as it knew it was hooked, it swam fast forward and just clipped the line off right ahead of the leader. And, uh, and he, and he says, yeah, but then you complained that you didn't have any more wire to try fishing again. And I said, yeah. And, and he goes, well, you say early in the book, there's like a little light on the top of the raft when you get into the raft. And, and I said, yes. And he said, and you describe how it's driven by a, a little saltwater driven battery down in the, in the ocean, didn't you? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, like, wasn't there a wire running between the battery and the light? <laughs> and, you know, it, it never occurred to me not only had it never occurred to me it had never occurred to any one of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of adults who had ever read the book so <laughs> i was like yeah next time i'm bringing you along kids because yeah, and I, years I mean, after I'm, the event as well sorry and years after the event as well yeah years after the event you know it it, it i knew when i was in the raft that i was making mistakes i knew that i wasn't the smartest guy on the planet i knew that i wouldn't necessarily have the best solutions and i missed the advice of other people i was very conscious of that and missing the advice of other people or for that matter yeah i mean i had to you know i couldn't be on watch all the time um, so, you know, maybe I, you know, if I'd been with somebody else, they would have seen a ship that didn't pass me by. I mean, nine ships passed me by, but you know, uh, they, uh, there are so many ways that somebody else might've helped me, but then again, um, I didn't have enough water for two people. So probably both of us would have died. So, you know, everything's again, this sort of yin yang balance, but I, I, looking back on it, I don't think I made it too many horrendous mistakes um and actually think i did overall i'd give myself a b plus maybe <laughs> i think that's even being too much there's a lot of in, people in who a, don't in come a mr. back in a, just in a mr toad kind of kind of way tomorrow i'll feel differently i'll give myself a c minus i i guess i guess um you know you mentioned that you had to so 
you had these solar stills and, and you had to destroy one of them to work out how they worked. But right. I mean, if you if you had had that extra solar still and an extra person, maybe that combination would have been the ideal. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, maybe. Again, it's, um, you know, you're constantly uh, facing paradox. Um, and part of that is, you know, if I use this piece of equipment, it's not going to be useful for anything, you know, it's going to be used and that's it. So you have to ration everything. You have to ration, you know, not only your equipment, the use of your energy, all kinds of things. And um, what is good is also bad. <laughs> that's the paradox. <laughs> like it's good. I've solved this problem, but it's not good because I don't have it to do something else with. And so the first solar still I used as directed. And part of the problem was the raft now was very much like Napoleon Solo with, with, with the life raft. My raft now was the more stable part in this little balloon that was made to float on the top of the ocean is just sort of bobbling there very, very light. And every wave that we go by would take it out of the end of its tether and boom, you know, shake it. And it, it violently shook it enough that it actually put a tear in it. And so now I've got this inflated thing that's pretty useless. I don't have any material to fix it with. You know, it's, we take a very specialized, I tried fixing it. Um, and so finally it's like, well, this is useless as a solar cell and I can't use the other ones because they're obviously not working the way they're designed to work. So I cut it up just to kind of figure out, okay, what is really going on here in this thing and how does it work? And um, then I figured, oh, well, I'll, try using it a different way. And so I figured out a way of, of, of getting it to actually work, which was actually tying it onto the raft. And it had its downside too. And, and uh, another one of these things, these, this, this sort of dilemma of, um, you know, do I do this because there's this cloth on the bottom of it that makes it work basically. And, but that cloth is now wet a lot and then drying out and wet a lot and drying out and it's going to rot. And indeed mm -hmm. it did. Each one had about a month of, of, of life to it. So um, it was just one of those things, you know, that, that dilemma of do I, do I destroy something in order to figure out a solution? Is it worth it? Um, you don't, there are no right answers. It's, they're just, um, they're just what you do. And you can't pick yourself find... up. I, you know what? I did that a lot. I, I was like constantly reminding myself, you know, you're doing the best you can, but you, but also giving myself a hard time if I wasn't doing the best I could, you know, I was, this is, this is a situation where you can't cut yourself any slack whatsoever. You know, you got to be on 24 seven, you got to be like somebody at the Olympics, but you got to be in the zone as much as you possibly can because any little mistake and that's it. What I find kind of remarkable is, you know, you designed and built your own boat, you single-handedly sailed it across the Atlantic and sort of halfway back, and then you you had the sort of wherewithal to dive back into your sinking boat to, you know, save some equipment, then you successfully rationed your water and food, you know, you, you were able to do all these different things, and then you were able to, you know, you made the decision to tear up your solar still you must be an incredibly uh, mentally resilient person. And so I'm wondering, you know, was there a point where, because you had no one else there, that you, you really broke down and you noticed your yourself go? Or did you, did you have moments where you noticed you were acting sort of in a crazy way and you had to sort of, 
you know, say no, you know, your rational side had to take back over? Um, yeah, basically. Um, like I said, I can be a pretty volatile person. Um, uh, I can get really angry. Um, I, I can have a pretty short fuse. I can get frustrated very easily. And there was no exception to that in the raft. Um, I would, uh, like, for example, early on in the, you know, the, I was going through this kind of gale conditions for, for a while and the raft would never turned upside down. I'd had this, I don't know, this kind of drogue thing I, I, I was using and, and, but it would tip up on end and scoop up all kinds of ocean. And I just dried out, you know, just, just bailed it out. And, you know, every time it does that, you're in, uh, in danger of, you know, losing equipment and all this other stuff. It's a real nightmare. And uh, so I remember one, one day where it's like, ah, oh, I get almost knocked down and I get bailed out and everything. And then boom, here it comes again. And here it comes again. And I just flip out, you know, and just yell and scream and cry, you know, acting like a three-year-old. Um, and there was that part of me, that kind of rational part of me that was saying, you're acting like a friggin' idiot. I don't know, maybe people don't have this experience, but I have this all the time. I can fly off the handle having an argument with somebody and there's that voice in me going, you're being a dick, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but then there's this other part of me going, I don't care, <laughs> you know? And, 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 and that rational part of me, I think, sort of somehow knew it. it's like, look, just get it out and then get on with it, you know, give my, give myself, you know, 10, 15 minutes of, uh, there was a, this guy I knew there was a, a very early single-handed round the world race back that actually started just when I came ashore in 82, I was covering it. And this guy came back and there was a brilliant section of footage of him in the middle of the Southern ocean in his boat where, you know, things are going wrong and he just lets loose cursing every curse you can imagine over and over and like at first it's kind of astounding and after five minutes you're laughing and it goes on for like 15 minutes before he gets himself under control and it's it's hysterical but you know that this is what we have to especially when you're by yourself you have nobody else to mm -hmm. lean on you have nobody else there to say hey just calm down I, i'll deal with it you know or whatever and uh and, and so, yeah, I lost it a lot. Um, I, and my, my wife hates it when I curse at the ocean, but I, <laughs> but I do at times, like I get frustrated and whatnot. And certainly I, when the, the fish hold the bottom tube, I mean, I came to a point where physically I didn't think I could do it anymore. I just, I was at the end, <laughs> but something that kept me going through, um, the entire experience was not just, you know, Duel Roberts and these other successful survivors who came back and shared their tale with, with, uh, with everybody, but it was also the, the real knowledge that of how many people in history, uh, even in this very limited oceanic kind of, kind of history, um, have been here before have been smarter and more resilient than me, but who still didn't make it. And I felt that presence a lot. Um, and I felt like they 
those people helped me to persevere. I felt their company and I felt a, it gave me a sense of purpose. I think that's another thing that all, almost all, almost all, certainly all I've talked to, all the survivors share is that you have to have a sense of, mm-hmm. of purpose for getting through it and coming back. And part of that early stage, I think of, of recoil is developing mm-hmm. that purpose. For me, it was like, well, if you're lucky enough to get out alive, guess what? You have an opportunity to, you will have an opportunity to rebuild relationships. You have a different focus on what is really important in life. You know what your weaknesses are and you'll be able to compensate for them or improve in those parts. And you're you'll able you're also able to ho- hopefully capitalize somewhat on on the strengths that you, that that you've learned, and to be able to come back and give those people those people who didn't make it who are smarter and more talented and, and more resilient than me, uh, kind of a voice um, to fulfill their mm-hmm. purpose. Mm-hmm. So, do you think? you know do you think sort of the regrets you had over portions of your life do you think those were actually so they were in some sense a motivating factor in in your survival yeah i do Mm -hmm. in the long term i mean they were hard to face and deal with but um yeah definitely it's interesting because you know i would be thinking you know this is not the time to be thinking about these (laughs) you know my but but actually yeah it was maybe exactly what you needed yeah but plus you know everything has its own time and you know we're all i think human beings we're we're all so vain and proud and and you know we're just more creatures and we we all have huge limitations and um part of that is you know our predictability I, i've often said uh that you know we're a lot more complicated than psychologists would like and 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 a lot simpler than we would like to be <laughs> you know really so we do tend to go through if you look at you know individual or group survival experiences they're very natural kind of behaviors and uh, experiences, stages of the experience that we share. They're not universal, but they are common. And, and uh, you know, so you have to go, you kind of have to go through all this stuff. Now, people will choose. The, the thing that fascinates me most in life is that so many people, you can take any kind of situation you can imagine and you can put a group of people facing that situation and they will react differently from one another. And it's like, why is it that somebody like me or I I have friends who are real adventurers, for example, like this friend of mine who lives in New Zealand, like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go up to the Arctic and freeze myself into the ice for the winter and, you know, learn about, you know, man's relationship with nature in such an environment because I'm really interested in indigenous, you know, how indigenous, people's relate to their environment and how it shapes their cultures. You know, that's his shtick. And, you know, to me, it's like, oh my God, that's horrible. You know, I mean, that's a, there's no place I would less rather be than frozen into the ice in, in the Arctic in the winter. 
but for him, it's exciting and interesting. And, you know, you, you look at this all the time, whether it's people in sports who are, you know, able to do these things. And, you know, you look at these adventures that are able to face fears that, that, or deal with things that would, you know, like put us all over the top of, of being scary, you know, going swimming with great white sharks, not my thing, you know, but for, uh, for other people, it's exciting. And so what's interesting to me is that we can, we can have the exact same experiences, but, but have very different relationships to the, that experience. And that really in terms of like what I went through, um, is really important because, you know, a lot of people would just freeze up. They just would. We know that. Mm -hmm. And they wouldn't make it. And then other people would do better than me. Um, and But most people are kind of in the middle. Mo almost all people would find out that they're way more resilient than they ever thought they could be. Mm -hmm. um, but you don't know till you're there. And a lot has to do with experience, training, what becomes the norm. Uh, somebody mentioned this the other day, and I realized this about sailing at a fairly early age, that it stirred up fear. Um, it also stirred up excitement and that there was a very, very close relationship between fear and excitement in a physical way. You know, your, your, your blood's pumping, you got your I don't know, it's doing something to your pheromones and you're doing, you're, you're doing, uh, you know, uh, what, what, what is it that's hyping you up in your blood? And, uh, what am I trying to think of? It's going to mental block here. Adrenaline. Adrenaline. Yeah. Huge adrenaline rushes. Right. And some people are able to take that adrenaline and kind of, you know, channel it, channel it into, <laughs> this is exciting. This is fun. And other people are like adrenaline. And it's like, this is horrible. This is fear. This is panic time, you know? Mm -hmm. So you're one of the first. I guess, but you know, I think a lot of that is because of my entire background. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I, people I read and all that kind of stuff. And also my own personal experiences is running around and dealing with, you know, dealing with things. I was kind of, made to work from a very early age and put things together and fix things and be responsible for stuff and, and, and all of that. And, uh, you know, it, it's all part of the soup of who we are. I, we like to think that we're in total control of ourselves, but I, I don't think so. I have a, I, you know, one of my saying, you know, kind of my sayings is, is that, you know, you show me a self-made man and I'll show you somebody who stands on a few billion people's shoulders. You know, mm -hmm. it, you know we, we, we're not who we are by accident or alone. We, we don't make ourselves. This is actually something I was particularly curious to ask you about. So did, did this give you some insight into control? Because, I mean, this is a situation you were thrown into. There was no way you could magic yourself onto the shore, uh, you know, the next day. So did this give you some particular insights into the way that, you know, we have control? You know, what can I do as an individual to to position myself in life. Did, did you gain any insight there? Mm, I, mm, I don't know about specifically other than what I've, I've really said, I guess, you know, my view overall, and, and I, you know, a lot of things about being in the raft wasn't like uh, awakenings, but strengthening, you know, uh, elements that I had believed in before. Like I said, I, you know, I was a philosophy major. I'd studied a lot of you know, um, religions and spirituality of different sorts, as well as, you know, uh, non, -re non religious, uh, you know, principles and, uh, I don't know, logic, 
you know, all those kind of things. And I was always interested in a lot of ideas uh, and exploring those. And, and certainly being in the RAF gave me time to sort of re-explore a lot of that stuff. Um, certainly in terms of my relationship with the environment and the fish and everything, it's sort of, I, I consider myself sort of a scientific uh, mystic. Um, and, you know, I, I could bore you all day with, you know, kind of my personal outlook towards, you know, religion or spirituality and stuff. And I'm, I'm not going to do that, but um, I don't really, I don't know. I, I'm not sure how to answer that in, in a cogent way. Um, I, I think it awakened a lot of things in me. I had in a visceral way, I was awakened to many of the things I believed in, like, like, the relationship that I had with, with the fish and by looking out, like, for example, um, it, they were following the raft and they would go off during the day and hunt flying fish and stuff. And, and, and but they would keep coming back to the raft, like a point of rendezvous. And then at night they would just sort of gather around the raft and pace it and things that go through the ocean at night, you know, they stir up the little bioluminescence in, in the water. It's just magical. It's one of the nature's most incredible beauties to me. And that's reflected all in the stars. You, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away from any humankind, any light pollution or anything. There is no bigger sky country than the ocean. And you have these, you know, stars wrapping around you and, and then reflected in these, you know, oceanic brilliance in the, in the, yeah, there's, there's no way that I can explain what a feeling is to be in the middle of nowhere surrounded by that and and not be very viscerally touched in feeling completely humble by it, completely mm -hmm. humbled and blessed to be able to even see it. And, you know, Kathy says that, and this came from the lo little log that I kept, you know, um, uh, Kathy says that the core of, of a drift is, is the line, it's a view of heaven from a seat in hell. And I guess that's the best I can explain it is that, you know, a lot of these ideas and things I had maintained before, but it, this made it very, very real. And I don't think I was disillusioned by much of anything. I except, you know, I think that I, I felt in terms of human relationships that I had always expected too much of people and that I, whether, you know, no matter how troublesome humanity is that I recognize that even I was a part of humanity and with all my foibles and, and that I had a much greater need for humanity than I ever imagined that that was a really big awakening. Mm -hmm. But you probably also had an awakening about what you actually need to survive in terms of resources. I mean, does that give, did that give you even a perspective on the way we're heading towards global warming and climate change, for example, or do you have some unique perspective there that came out? Um, I don't know. I think, I think I knew most of that. I mean, I had read the books, you know, I'd read the book I, in a sort of intellectual way, you know, I knew, okay, well, you know, hypothermia can kill you in, you know, minutes and, uh, you know, you need water in a matter of days, you need food in a matter of, you know, weeks and, and those, so I, you know, I had those priorities kind of 
straighten. And, and like I said, I had sort of good training in a way from experience about how to deal with different kind of problems. I had knowledge. I had a lot of knowledge that was relevant. You know, a lot of people go, oh, I could never, I could never survive what you went through. And I say, well, what are you talking about? You live in New York City. I, I'd perish there in a week. You know, I just can't, uh, you know, I, I can go and visit it and whatnot, but I'm totally out of my element. You know, you have to realize that I was kind of in my element in terms of, of knowing how to deal with the, the environment and, and all of that kind of stuff. But yeah, I think I was aware of, you know, global warming wasn't exactly a concept when I was young <laughs> by a long shot. Um, but as it, as it emerged as an idea, certainly I had, uh, you know, I, I, I wasn't surprised uh, or anything like that. And I do believe in science and not that science is flawless. We do rewrite it, but that's actually one of the beauties of science is that when we discover we've made a mistake, guess what? <laughs> further, further investigation and whatnot modifies that. I mean, it's a reasonable way of, of, of approaching life. Um, but certainly, you know, I was uh, getting back to what we started talking about, you know, I was, you know, in sort of involved with a back to the land and a seasteading as a, as a friend of mine, designer friend of mine coined the term seasteading, which was going on in the same time, you know, build your own boat, live a simple life, live in more integrated with nature, you know, all these things were, were important to me from the time I was, I was young living, you know, going out camping, living out of a backpack, and you realize I don't need a lot of, to survive. I don't really need, you know, I mean, it's love. I, I would love to get into a Ferrari and drive it, but I don't need it. You know, I mean, there's a difference. There's a huge difference between need and want. And certainly in the raft, again, it gets back to this, you know, yeah, I was aware of these concepts, but here in a very visceral and very direct way, I'm experiencing it, which is I'm living in a rubber raft, a, a rubber tent, essentially, in the middle of the world's greatest wilderness working for a few hours a day. And as long as the equipment works, I can survive. So everything else is just gravy, you know? And I, I, to me, I'm kind of amazed here. We, you know, we built our own home here and uh, you know, I'm, I'm amazed by how, how much stuff I'm, I've collected over a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, and do I need any of it? Not much. I, I like a lot of it, but there's a big difference. So in terms of uh, a practical side of things then, so you were catching fish, but was it just fish or did you have other things that you were catching or what else were you eating out there? Was it just the fish? It was 90% Dorado. Uh, probably mm, maybe even more than 90%, frankly. I would collect uh, barnacles. I had a piece of line. I became sort of a barnacle farmer. Uh, I had a piece <laughs> of line, stranded line that I, I, I trailed out the back, which served several different functions. But one thing is the little gooseneck barnacles we grow on it. So every once in a while, they get these teeny little nubs about that big. And, you know, I would scrape them off with a knife and have my, my, my barnacle burgers, as I called them. Um, or, you know, or a little soup. I, I would pick it uh, sargassum weed that would come floating by, uh, which is kind of like a tumbleweed of the ocean, uh, just sort of slowly, you know, freely floats across the surface. And 
all kinds of little creatures are roaming, roaming around in that little crabs and shrimp and stuff like that. And I would pick at those. And towards the end, I was able to catch a few birds um, that would come and land on the top of the raft. And as weak as I was, I found that my, my uh, reflexes is actually probably as fast as they had ever been, um, probably helped by fishing for the Dorado. And uh, so I, you know, I could see them kind of land on the top, the shadow land on the top of the raft. I could grab them real quick. And uh, they tasted pretty much like fish and usually had a few fish in their stomachs that I would also eat. But uh, so it was a pretty much all fish diet. And, and of course, my, my brother, my younger brother uh, joked with me on the way when I got home um, because the question was often, you know, well, you know, well, how much weight did you lose? And it's very common for ocean survivors to lose about a third of their weight within a few weeks, which was about my status when I landed. I lost, I'd lost about a third of my weight, you know? So my brother said, no, no, you shouldn't write a drift. You should write, you know, C.V. Callahan's Secret to Thinner Thighs in 76 Days. <laughs> did you notice, uh, did you, what was the, did you notice mental and physical changes throughout the journey? Oh, was it like very apparent that your body was changing? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I looked like, um, well, besides the saltwater sores, these, which would end up being like hundreds of little open ulcers. And usually like, you know, where you'd sit or elbows, you know, under your arms, any place that would rub um, that there, there was that element, which was just a, mostly a, a nuisance and painful. Um. But, you know, I started losing weight pretty quickly and very typically I lost it. I, I found it am amazing. I, I called it the demo derby of flesh. I don't know if you know what demo derbies are, but that's where basically you grab a bunch of old cars and kind of reinforce them and run around in an infield of like a soccer type stadium and bash each other to bits until the last one is left running. Right. And by then you're like the hood's all fallen off and it's all smashed to bits. But and it's amazing that they can still keep going because, you know, my car, if, you know, I, uh, I get a low tire, or, you know, a little dent in it or something, it stops working entirely. So, but it, you go to these, so it was being in the rafts is kind of like a demo derby of flesh. It was amazing to see, how my body adapted and kept going um, in, in many ways. One was e even psychological. Like when I dreamt, I, I, I dreamt of food and drink every single time. And, it, but it was never, you know, I never dreamt of steak. I never dreamt of uh, a fish <laughs> or anything like that. It was all the stuff that my body really needed. It was breads and fruits mm -hmm. and vegetables and, and all of that stuff. And I found that kind of interesting. And I found it interesting that initially, of course, I was kind of turned off to the idea of just like stripping up fish and eating it. And, um, sushi wasn't that popular until after that time. Um, but I learned, you know, actually I was very fortunate to be given these really delicious fish. Um, but initially I wasn't eating like the organ meats and stuff like that. But over time, actually the psychology changed me um, to where at the end of the voyage, I didn't really care about the flesh that much. I was most interested in, you know, fresh fish eyes and fresh fish liver and all the things that had uh, the nutrients, the vitamins, the sugars, this, the fats, and, um, 
in the liquid that my body really most needed, uh, uh, stuff like that. So psychologically, I saw a change and physically, of course, my legs kept getting, I wasn't using my legs very much. And so mm -hmm. they thinned out more and more and more. If you looked at pictures of me, of course, there were no real pictures of me that you could really see my body uh, directly after landing. Uh, and then my, I started retaining a lot of fluids. So I ended up looking like I had elephantiasis in my legs and feet and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So you can't really see, but initially my legs were really skinny with knobby knees, kind of like you see somebody who had been in a POW camp for a long time or, or, or something like that. But my upper body had remained fairly strong. You could see in the initial cover of the drift, you could, I, you know, I went down and we kind of took some pictures of me in the raft and you can see my muscles were still pretty, uh, pretty well-developed and whatnot, probably better than they are now for sure. So how long did it take then? So did that mental change remain? Like, I, are you still able to go eat fish eyes and stomach <laughs> contents and feel happy with that? And how long did it take for the, yeah. How long did it take for both the physical and the mental to, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I haven't been anywhere where they're serving fish eyes, so I don't know if I could handle that or not. I, I mean, a lot of times I, I think back on some of the, some of the things I ate and I just go like, Ooh, I, I don't think so. But, um, I, you know, yeah, I certainly, I, I eat fish and, you know, with, with great respect and, uh, and things like that. Um, Physically, I had a really hard time getting around for over six weeks because of this problem of re retention of fluid. Um, I was really high, really low in potassium, really high in sodium. Uh, it doesn't take that long for the saltwater source to start healing up and, you know, probably within a month or something. I mean, I still have scars and stuff, but, you know, they weren't a long-term problem. Um, and I was very lucky in that I didn't have any other real long-term effects that I can evaluate, that anybody can evaluate in any way. I mean, maybe I did organ damage and stuff like that. I've had, certainly had other problems, but then again, I'm old now, <laughs> almost 70 years old now, so it's different. But um, it took about six weeks before I could really start getting around reasonably well. It took six months actually before I was really back on my feet and had built the weight back up and muscle tissue and stuff like that. And, it, but it changed my metabolism. I couldn't, you know, before then I was a young person eating all the time and not gaining weight. And after, um, I, I just felt like I got kicked into middle age and started losing hair. All this, I did have hair once. Um, you know, that was coming out like in handfuls shortly after I came back and, you know, stuff like that. So it definitely had an effect on me, but uh, how to quantify that exactly, I don't know. Well, can I ask, so in preparation for this talk, I, you know, I, I read The Essex, I watched The Life of Pi. So at the end of The Essex, uh, which for people who don't know, is a shipwreck uh, from way back during the time when they were hunting for sperm whales. Um, at, at the end of that book, it, it talks about um, people would hoard, the, the survivors hoarded food. Right. You know, for, did, did you ever have anything strange like this that Hold you on, picked yeah. up? Or? Yeah. I didn't go anywhere without food with me for months. I had uh, peanut butter. I had some 
crackers and I had, uh, or, you know, like peanuts and stuff like that. Um, probably a couple of chocolate bars, my favorite, um, things like that. I, I mean, everywhere I went, I had food. Um, mm-hmm. but in that, did, and did, did that, st- how long did that last? I don't remember exactly, probably till I got back to Maine anyway. I mean, you know, then, then you're kind of in your, in your, in a place and, and you know, there mm-hmm. is food around. I mean, we, it is, you know, you talk about awakenings of things. I mean, I, I had this friend, uh, Jim Brown, uh, he's a wonderful designer and, and, uh, who, who coined the, the term seasteading and he was up visiting us once I remember. And, uh, and so we're going to throw together a dinner and, uh, Jim spent a lot of times in, in what, what we normally call the third world or the emerging nations. And, and Jim has always insisted is actually the two thirds world. And, uh, so he's, you know, he knows what it's like with, to live for a lot of people in this world and in terms of their, you know, food stocks and, in and, and just basics having, having your basic needs met. And so Jim, we're sitting there and, and Jim goes, oh, well, do you have some peppers? And I open up the fridge and go, yeah, you know, we do have some peppers up here. And he, and he looked at the refrigerator, which wasn't, you know, like a huge deal or anything by American standards. It wasn't like we were like overstocked with stuff or anything. And he just said, what wealth? He just, what wealth you, I'm looking at right here. And it's true. We are so spoiled. Um, uh, especially in America, mo- almost everybody in America and in, in Europe and so on. We have no idea how much wealth we surround ourselves with every day, including that food. So for me, coming back, I'm in a way, you know, people would go, oh, well, you know, like invite me over or something. Well, well, excuse the excuse the condition of my apartment. And I just laugh, you know, it's just like, what? <laughs> it doesn't leak, does it? You know, it doesn't, you know, you've, you've got a dry space to, you've got cushions, you've got, you know, (laughs) it's a different perspective when you go through stuff like that. And of course, you know, there is that realization, which certainly was hammered home in the, in the raft uh, that, you know what? I'm in this raft, but I really have no reason to complain. (laughs) You know, there's, there's that reasonable part of me because, even here, I am probably better off than a lot of people in this world right now. I mean, well, I, I don't know if that's, I mean, you could have died at any, you were, you were down the bottom somewhere for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But see, I had the fish around me. I had resources. Not everybody does have resources. I had tools. Uh, not everybody has mm. tools or can afford the tools and so on. I, you know, I had been lucky enough, you know, my parents were, you know, they, they like traveling and whatnot. And like, I went to, um, to Hong Kong in 1970, you know, where they had gotten several million, uh, refugees in a matter of months and where there was dire, I mean, real dire poverty everywhere you turn, beggars and people living in conditions that just were amazing. And, um, you know, I was well-traveled enough to know what the real bottom of our societies are in terms of, of mm-hmm. their meeting their physical needs. And, uh, 
And, and, and that helped me too, you know, it's, you know, not that I didn't complain or feel sorry for myself and stuff like that, but there was that other realization too, of what, what is real for, for a lot of people in the world. Hmm. On, um, on a practical side of things, you mentioned the, um, the Dorado, uh, hitting the, the underside of the boat. You were also attacked by sharks, right? During your yeah yeah <laughs> I was fortunate there too in terms of um, comparisons to survivors in the Pacific generally um, mm -hmm. you know some people like I knew um, I, there was a um, um, a couple of survivors but not only the Baileys I think who had a lot of problems with sharks um, but um, uh, Bill Butler and Simone Butler, who were adrift for 66 days, I don't know, maybe five or 10 years after me, something like that in the Pacific. And they had to learn how to live with um, sharks surrounding the raft and smacking at it and stuff like that 24 seven, basically. So I was fortunate. I had individual encounters and usually they were mostly interested in the ecosystem that had developed around the raft and basically kept me alive and eventually brought my salvation. You know, shark, sharks are a part, predators are certainly a part of that. And um, so sometimes they, you know, one, the first one was just a hammerhead that, you know, kind of came over to check me out and fortunately just slid under the raft and wasn't interested and swam off to, you know, ones that would come up under the raft, you know, bash the bottom of the raft and you know kind of goes flying off the top of the ocean a little bit and me poking at them with my little spear trying to get them to go away and whatnot so I had some individual experiences with them um and they were certainly not unfrightening but <laughs> you know I was I was fortunate I was able to drive them away with a little spear. They lose interest and swim away and stuff like that. The most persistent one was when I bought, hold the bottom tube of the raft. And I, it was like a buzzard, it, almost as if it could kind of sense that mm -hmm. something was really wrong here. And he was just going to buy this time. But I eventually got a really good hit on him with the spear and he just disappeared. I guess you were probably moving around quite a lot when uh, you, how, how much were you in the water when you, you had the hole in the bottom of the boat? Oh, none, were you... none. I never got out of the raft. I was no, no, no. I mean, so did, did part of the raft go so that, I mean, was water entering the raft? Oh yeah. 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 In terms of the raft itself, I don't know. You can picture it as a, I don't know. Do people know what inner tubes are anymore? <laughs> I, I can put up a picture yeah. of it on the screen. Yeah, okay. Well, there's one tube on top of the other. And when the bottom tube was holed, it not only loses that volume of the tube, but if you look at the shape of a, a displaced vessel, it's, it's that entire volume there that's keeping you afloat. So when that collapses, all of a sudden the whole raft is in plus. The bottom of the raft now, water pressure is pushing the, those tubes up. And so there's this big bubble on the inside, uh, which mm -hmm. goes up to basically water level. And so it meant rather than having, you know, like, mm, I would guess a foot, 14 inches, maybe 16 inches of freeboard. I had a couple, two or three inches of freeboard. So that meant there was a lot of water washing in and out all the time. And, uh, it was made it impossible to fish and made it impossible to produce water. Cause I had to deal with these solar stills about every 15 minutes to get any production. I, it made it, um, 
uh, moving around on the raft was like walking in rubber quicksand and I have all these saltwater sores. And then I was worried about my legs sticking down into the ocean in this fabric for other creatures to bump them or grab them or whatever. Uh, it was in plus the raft is now not no longer this thing lightly floating on the top of the surface of the water. It's dragging kind of through the water and uh, it's not really going very fast anywhere. So it was it was it was a per, it was a nightmare to do it um, to get it. So I was I was wet a lot, uh, which wasn't helping anything. Um, it was just it was just awful. <laughs> All of these uh, problems and then a shark circling. <laughs> yeah, just to cap it off. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, you must have just been mentally exhausted at this point. How, how long did you say? It was, you said it was two weeks to fix it? or About, 10, about days or 10 days, I believe, before I finally got a solution. And, and, and that was it. That was working a lot. I was in the middle of the night. I was working in the middle of the day. It was just because you had to continuously pump it right yeah i would try to get the you know the patch fixed and then pump up the raft and then a couple hours you know it might give me a couple of hours rest and then you know wave would hit or whatever and the patch would blow out and start all over again it 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 really was not was not and i guess you were also losing material because when it popped out you'd lose no most of the time i i i was smart enough i actually tied everything together and whatnot and, and I mean, usually what would happen is the it would it would blow out a corner of the mouth or something like that mm. it wouldn't like completely lose it and usually i'd have stuff tied on it was tied on there were like these exterior hand lines on the raft and I, mm -hmm. you know, part of the lashing was like involved them and whatnot. So I wasn't really losing material. Um, and it, and if, it, if the plug fell out, it's still closed cell foam. It floats on the surface and I could paddle over and pick it up or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. But I guess, as you mentioned, the real problem was you ultimately wanted to drift somewhere where you could be found right. and you were moving much more slowly once you had the puncture. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I figured I was making between the current, the current was carrying me roughly 10 to 15 miles a day, depending. And the wind would carry me about the same. I, I think I averaged, you know, roughly speaking, about 25 miles a day, something like that. Um, and I would encourage that drift. Uh, the way I positioned the raft and, and all that other kind of stuff. But there, there wasn't a lot. Of, and I could control my... I don't know, drift direction very slightly, uh, which was important because mm -hmm. I wanted to keep myself south because I didn't want to, the currents and the winds swing uh, towards the end of the voyage and I could have easily missed the islands and then get swept up in the Gulf Stream and caught in the gyre taking me back to Europe again. So um, mm -hmm. anyway, I, I was, I was pretty it's fortunate. Little... I was, and I was also very fortunate. I was unfortunate in that if I had drifted sort of south, I could have hit the Cabo Verde Islands in, you know, 400 miles or something or other through a few hundred miles. Yeah, there's no longer direction I could have gone without hitting land. But I was also very fortunate in that the current and the wind were very consistent. And there was only one 24 hour period where I sort of took this 360 degree loop. But most of the time I was drifting pretty straight on to the Caribbean islands. So this is one of the things that if anyone without your background had been in this situation, they simply wouldn't have known how to do any of it. They wouldn't have known how to direct the boat. They wouldn't have known which direction to direct it in any, 
in any case, did you how how do you know how accurate you were with your positioning? Uh, yeah, yeah. In hindsight, yeah, I I ended up um, I don't know. It's it's kind of complicated. Again, I can go into detail in the book, but basically, I made myself a pencil sextant. The sextant's really just a protract, you know, fancy protractor to measure angles. And I was measuring the angle of the North Star, which gave me roughly my latitude. I was worried about drifting north of 18 degrees latitude because that's where you'd I'd miss the islands. And um, I was, you know, sighting on this thing. It wasn't a very accurate <laughs> piece of equipment. And I'm bobbling around in this little raft. It's hard enough on a small on a small boat to get a get a decent sight. So, um, but generally speaking, I thought, mm, I don't know. I think I'm about maybe 16, 17 degrees, whatever. I can't even remember what it was now. Uh, and I ended up uh, being a little bit further south of of my the latitude that I calculated and I was off on the longitude of course I couldn't calculate that because I didn't have an accurate timepiece or tables or any of that other kind of stuff um but my piloting my estimation of speed and distance was I was basically a hundred miles away from where I thought I was or where I hoped I was but I was I wasn't sure about that either. I thought I told I told myself, you know, I said, oh, you're you're probably full of shit. You know, you, you have no idea where you are, and especially towards the end, because I kept expecting to see the islands, and I was being over optimistic about my drift westward, and they weren't showing up, and they weren't showing up. There were signs that things were changing, and that. Mm -hmm. But then I thought, well, geez, I I could have drifted between the islands in the middle of the night or something or other, and not even known it you know and so next stop like central america or or maybe i'm completely off and i'm actually for much further north and next stop is england and yeah i i really had no definitive idea but it, as it turned out i was about 100 miles off i i i'd be pretty proud with that effort if i, if I had been 100 miles off yeah but um do you, has your um story a, a bit of a weird question has your story do you think changed with the 40 years you know you, you had the experience then you've had to retell the story i imagine every time you go to a bar or yeah. <laughs> every time you meet someone they ask for this story and you're probably do, do you think you've had uh, some deviation from for the 40 years ago story i am sure uh you know memory is not accurate as we all know i think my advantage in terms of the story being, you know, it also it's two things here because I even note in the introduction of a drift, you know, that, you know, there's a difference between story and reality, <laughs> you know, story is a perspective and it can try in, in language. It uses language, which is not reality. Um, right. It, it has, you know, I've spent probably half of a 50 year career writing. And I will tell you that words fail all the time. So I can impart an impression, I can impart a story, but that's not exactly what it was. I will guarantee you that it was truly a hellish experience. It doesn't mean, <laughs> it doesn't mean that I don't find things of value that I would prefer be the story uh, that is, that are more important than the pain and the suffering and things like that to me, that that is part of the story. It's our story is, you know, perspective. It's not just what happens. 
And in terms of that, I think the story of Adrift, the reality is what it was. I, that's never going to change. You know, my memory of it is, is colored by the story that I constantly tell myself about it. Uh, but that's been very consistent in part because I started writing the story down even when I was in the raft. That mm -hmm. I felt like I'm probably not going to make it, but maybe somebody will discover the raft and there will be something here that I write down that may be of that some value to other mariners. You know, that base mm -hmm. that real base, that that's what it was. And when I came back. I had nothing um, and a magazine asked me to write an article about it. And so that was, you know, an opportunity for me um, to do something that would make me a few bucks and would help me to create a story. And story to me is an essential human need. Uh, like I said, you know, the pads of paper to me were one of the most important bits of survival gear because they allowed me to start story to be able to kind of separate myself from the experience to a certain degree and to say oh you know what yeah despite the fact that my body and stuff was suffering i can still observe and note that wasn't this incredible today this this, this happened or that happened or i saw this and in or i this idea occurred to me or whatever and you know, that's what we do with life is, is story gives us context. It gives us meaning. And in terms of that, I don't think that's changed a whole lot. When I, when I started writing Adrift, uh, what I did is I took all those notes and I spread them out on the bed and I kind of separated them into, this is practically what happened day one, you know, I had this much water, I, you know, I caught a fish, whatever. And on this side, I'm putting all the notes about what did I think about? What did I, you know, how did I feel and so on and so forth. And those kind of made patterns to me that created the chapters of Adrift. And I don't think that the, 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 you know, that part of the story, that memory, if you will, has really changed a whole lot. There's certain things have gotten heightened or changed in certain ways because I've gotten older. You know, I bring a different kind of perspective to it than I did when I was 30 years old, but it's not really that much mm -hmm. different. I, I mean, one of the reasons why I'm curious to ask is because, I mean, for those who don't know, you worked on the life of Pi, you, you were advising on the life of Pi. And this is sort of a theme that goes through the movie. I, I was wondering, you know, did you impart something like this on that on that movie? Is this something that comes from you? Because I haven't read the book. Um, yeah. Um, well, I don't know if you would if you would pick up a copy of the life of Pi and a copy of Adrift and read them next to each other, you will see a lot of parallels within the life of Pi. Obviously, the author of that book is, it's um, allegorical fantasy. I consider them both sort of mirrors of one another <clears throat> in a strange kind of way. Life of Pi is about, you know, some Indian boy gets trapped on a lifeboat with a, with a, a, a tiger and in a menagerie of, of animals and, and drifts for ages and, and so on. And so it's a, it's an allegorical fantasy and I consider a drift, a nonfiction allegory really. And, uh, and you whether it's specific passages, uh, or concepts, um, the, the, 
you'll find reflections in there. Um, I certainly did. I had a sailing friend who sent me a copy of Life of Pi. My wife and I were actually living on a boat in Australia, refitting a boat there. And she sent me a copy of Life of Pi and she says, look on page something or other, because I mentioned along with, you know, William Bly and a few other people. And, uh, you know, so I'm reading it and I'm, I'm going, oh, well, that's preposterous. That could never happen. But how could I make it happen? You know, how could I make that scene in the book kind of believable? And then ironically, you know, years later in 2008, I think it was, I got a call from uh, Ang Lee, basically the director, wonderful guy and uh, incredibly talented director. And he, and he wanted to come up and just and talk about the possibility of making this film. And so we did then, and then I ended up, you know, getting, the, they ended up getting in the green light a couple of years later. And I went to Taiwan and was very involved with the, with the making of the film. So there's a, there are reflections in the story, the basic story of Life of Pi, but then when I, when Ang asked me to come work on the film, there were a couple of basic concepts that, that I think were key. One is he said, um, well, I want you to come to Taiwan and help us make the movie. I want to make the ocean into a character, the major, a major character. And I don't know of any other film that has really done this. Almost all ocean set films use the ocean as a stage and that's it. And most of them look lifeless, like a stage. Um, they don't, you know, they, they rely entirely on the actors and everything else to bring life to it. Um, but it is not a character itself. And we worked very hard at bringing the ocean alive to show it in its many, many forms and moods and to use those to help tell the story, to reflect the moods and changes in the story itself. And the other thing he said when I got to Taiwan was, uh, I said, you know, well, Ang, what do you want me to do? And he said, well, I want you to make the movie better. And I said, well, that's, <laughs> that's great. I appreciate that, that you think I could do that, but that's, it's not very specific guidance. Can you be any more specific? It's a lot of latitude. Yeah. And he, and he says, well, I want you to bring authenticity to it and to make it believable. So my role was always to lobby for what was real, which of course is not always in sync with what everybody else needs. You know, the cameraman's lighting or whatever it is, but that was my primary role was to, to try to bring authenticity to it and make it real. And, uh, you know, I'd make props and design props and like the little raft he, you know, the raft he created, I was, had a big role in that. And, uh, but even setting up for scenes or I ended up um, basically directing the wave tank, doing uh, wave tank, you know, tests and studies and, and, and trying to provide him with different kind of sea surfaces, the suit and all, all this stuff it went on and on and on. Uh, but it was really interesting for me that, that there 30 years after me drifting around in the ocean that I was given the opportunity to bring to a new audiences in a totally different art form, um, the part the, through the life of Pi, you know, a very legitimate, great novel in its own right. Um, but to bring something of the spirit of the Dorado and my experiences on the raft to, uh, to, to film in that way. And uh, it was a great privilege to work on the film. I was very proud of being involved with it and all the people who worked on it, who 
were incredibly talented and, and brought their A game to it. So um, anyway. It, it just seems, you know, your story seems to fit. So I don't know if this is because you worked on the movie, but, <laughs> you know, the two stories, as you say, seem to sort of weave into one another. The fact that you had this sort of view of the Dorados that you did, the Mahi Mahi, as being some sort of like your savior. Or, and then in the movie itself, you had, you know, the zoo aspect and all the animals. Oh, they had the, you know, it, they, very- they had the Dorado too, remember. We had Dorado. Yeah. Um, that, that was a, a part of it. And, uh, but, but overall there's a, the, like, that's a very good example of how the, the stories kind of parallel and, uh, in the life of Pi as he gets to, you know, we go through the stages of survival, first of all, in a way that I've been talking about the same kinds of things that I went through, you know, an adaptation, you know, feeling like, oh, and then you have the, and the very big ups and downs and, you know, the, the budding relationship with the environment, basically. And there's a, like, there's a scene looking down on the lifeboat and life of pie and all these fish and sea creatures, like all around it and, and so on. And they are, um, you know, they're part of that ecosystem um, that and we, we, the raft that that the life, you know, the, that pie builds and and how he adapts it and and is, you know, he gets to first of all, he, he doesn't know how to live out there. And then after a while, he's sitting there and he's sitting in his his chair. We made him this like real comfy chair that the actor actually would fall asleep in between takes sometimes because it got really <laughs> comfy. And uh you know, it, but the, the character itself, it, it, himself actually got very at ease there. At some point he's playing drums and he's, you know, watching the dolphin jump and stuff like that. And so he's going through a lot of the same emotions and the same stages and the relationship with the environment is a very big part of both, both stories. And there is even a specific scene that relates to what I was talking about before, the, the, the a view of heaven from a seat in hell. Because I, I was telling Ang about different, you know, realities at sea, and I was saying, well, um, one thing that 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 happens very rarely, the sea is always alive. It always kind of has this breath to it, and we always try to use that in the film. We, you know, it's never just flat like a stage. And but there are times where it's very been very smooth for a number of days and you get these incredible reflections where you can't at night, especially it's very difficult to see, you know, you you see no clear horizon and where the stars are very bright. So you have the Milky Way like coming overhead and dipping down to the sea and almost wrapping around you. And you feel like you're literally in space, like you're floating in space. And I wrote about this in in my little log. I actually had the life raft looking like a little flying saucer going through the space, you know? (laughs) And uh, there's a scene in in uh, Life of Pi, which is kind of, they call it, we call it the tiger vision scene where the boy is now real wild. He's become the, you know, the wild creature himself. And he's looking down through the ocean with a tiger and they're kind of the fantasy of all the different creatures and all that. And then it pans back and it pans way back. And in the middle of the screen, you see this teeny, teeny, teeny little, little lifeboat surrounded in stars. Uh, so that's one of the scenes. I brought a few scenes, specific scenes, and I mean, I had some influence in scenes, but, you know, the, another one was the the whale that is so iconic, jumping up out of the ocean. Of course, it comes down across the raft, but that actually was inspired by a delivery I did many years later in 1985, where I was on deck by myself, and this mother and baby whale just came 
straight up out of the ocean, about a hundred yards away from the boat, just streaming bioluminescence and boom, back into the ocean. And I'm like, and I had, you know, a crew with me at the time and I went down to wake him up and he was, you know, and so I was the only person in the universe to see that at that time. And it just made me, you know, that's one of those visceral things where it's like, oh my God, I just saw something that nobody else has probably ever seen before. How well did the movie capture that, the image that you saw then? Oh, it was, well, it was quite different because, you know, I was just there, a pass, a passenger, you know, in reality, I had been a passenger, you know, just going, going by and there it was. And it was just that feeling of being in the middle of nowhere, but in the exact right time and the exact right place to see that. So I think it captured that, but of course it was, it was different applied in a different, different kind of way in, in the film. I guess also in the film, he was trying to signal to boats and you also had the, uh, you, you weren't able to get the attention of the nine boats you, you saw. How, how, how did you eventually get rescued? So you drifted over towards, uh, I suppose, uh, the Caribbean and, yeah. and uh, where were you in the end when you were rescued? I was just off of uh, the island of Marie Gallant, uh, which was named after, I guess, Christopher Columbus's second voyage to the to the americas he had there was um it's just off of guadalupe in the caribbean uh just north of dominica uh it's a small island it's not really a tourist island and um i got up close I, the night before i you know i started seeing light a loom of lights and i thought oh maybe they're pet you know but there were a lot of them quite a few of them so i thought oh well maybe it's a fishing fleet which is a good sign mm -hmm. um but you know, they were quite far off and I kept getting up because I could only maybe catch an hour of sleep at a time before I cramp up or whatnot. And so I constantly getting up and looking around and the Lumali, you know, they were basically there and there and there and they didn't really seem to move. And then I saw a pulse of a lighthouse. So I knew that I was close to land. And the next morning I could see um, the, the island, some details in the island and uh, I was closer than I thought I was, but I was going to be a really dangerous landing because the north half of the island was all coral cliffs with, you know, 3,000 miles of ocean smashing into it. And the south side of the island was, uh, it had a beautiful beach, but, you know, coral reef outlying the beach, which would have been really difficult to get across in one piece. So I was kind of preparing myself and, well, maybe I can paddle along, you know, influence my drift enough and get, get around the south side of the island and land in the lee of the island or something like that. And then I heard this, in, you know, engine from a, an outboard and looked out and there was a boat coming up to me and uh, three guys in it. And what I didn't realize immediately, but would later be aware of was that, um, they had come out to find fish and in fishermen being smart guys and and uh being what a what what a friend of mine calls uh, naturally literate uh, they come out and they saw all kinds of birds hovering above the raft and they knew oh there's probably fish out there and they never fished on that side of the island before but they decided to that day they hadn't been very successful in on the other side of the islands and uh so they came out to find the fish and they found me. Um, and the only reason, you know, uh, frigate birds were hovering uh, above the raft. 
because they their primary food is flying fish, which is the primary food of the Dorado. And they see the Dorado and they actually almost all work together sometimes. Like Dorado will, you know, drive the flying fish out of the water and the frigates will dive and, and grab the grab the the flying fish. So um, again, it was, you know, part of this the the story, if you will, which hasn't changed, which is, you know, how the Dorado became my companions and and uh, spiritual creatures and fed me and uh, almost killed me but in the end brought my salvation as well and so they took me into the island and that was the end of that story what was the what was the feeling when you when you first saw the island and you saw you heard and saw this boat what what was going through your head what did you have? <laughs> I'm not sure if I got it. I can't give you the entire story. You got to read it. <laughs> yeah, okay. But it, it was a good feeling. Is, there, is, there is kind of key element of, of that, of, of how I felt. And I did something which probably kind of surprised me as well, honestly. And, but it made perfect sense to me at the time. It just, re- it, it concluded. You know, I, I've been through life and I've had many, I've, I call them whole experiences. Sometimes they're within 24 hours. I'm sure, you know, everybody has this, this kind of thing where you, you go through something and it has a pretty well-defined beginning, a middle and an end. Mm-hmm. And it all seems to come together and make sense to you in both in your head and in your heart. And this was one of those times where it just like, it was almost like that was a, a miracle to me that, mm-hmm. you know, these guys came out, they found me, it was definitive end and just, and it tied up all the loose ends, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, and, and so, <laughs> where, so you've got on the I wall behind. I'll tell you that I was pretty tired. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'd have to be after 76 days. But yeah. <laughs> so the on the wall behind you, you have your spear gun and what, you know, what you were using to catch the Dorado. Yeah. What else did you, so where, where is the raft now? Where, what do you, do you have a bunch of stuff that you kept a hold of or? No, that's pretty much it. This is my disaster corner of my office, actually. I think it's a you, good you've had other one. disasters. I've, that... I've got everything's different everywhere else. I've got, you know, photos of boats and I have a Dorado skeleton above the door over there that was given to me by the uh, prop master in Life of Pi, with whom I work pretty closely for a long time. Just a beautiful structure, um, natural, natural design. Um, but um, I don't have much of anything other than the spear gun right now. And a couple, there's an illustration there of me mm-hmm. drifting up to the island and so on. But um, the raft, my parents boxed up, they came down to the islands shortly after I landed and they boxed it up in Peabody Museum uh, in Salem, Massachusetts has that in the box. I mean, it's probably all rotten now. I imagine it was natural rubber, but they also have the ditch kit and a lot of the gear that I have. I had a little bit of other stuff, which has been given to Mystic Seaport Museum. Um, they also have my log, my original log and all kinds of other memorabilia having to do with, you know, the publication of a drift and all that stuff. So I don't have much anymore. I'm in dispersal mode now. I'm, mm-hmm. like I say, I'm, I'm almost 70. I've come close to death many times in my life now. And um, uh, so the reality is that this is all going someplace. So 
it's it, it, it most most of it's it's gone already mm -hmm. do you have um could you tell me okay so when you when you you first uh had that first meal after getting back uh, what was the first shower like? What was the first, you know, when you were suddenly walking and able to stretch out your legs and you're able to sleep in a bed, how, how did that feel? Incredible. I mean, talk about heaven <laughs> on earth. Oh my God. Um, well, first of all, I had incredible, yeah, anybody who's been on a boat for a while, like you go out for an afternoon even, or maybe a day or something and you come back and maybe you're standing in front of the urinal and they have, all the whole room's suspending or whatever. And you have that motion in your head. So my motion was really intense. I could hardly, I couldn't, first of all, I had a hard time standing up. Uh, in fact, I fell face first on the beach when I first got out of the boat. And uh, so, yeah, and, and like, if I wanted to walk a hundred feet, I would be literally, almost literally bouncing off the walls of both edges of the, of, of a room before I got to the door, that kind of thing. And that lasted for quite a while. Um, but they took me to, uh, uh, to the hospital in Marie Gallant, which was, I'm not going to go into all the detail there because part of it was kind of funny. Um, but they, um, they, they brought me food, you know, first of all, the guy, the doctor comes in and he goes, well, you know, you've been out in this raft and I don't think we can give you follow solid food or anything like that. I said, well, wait a minute, <laughs> wait right there. No, no, no. I want to eat. Um, and I told them that I'd been eating fish and stuff like that, but they wanted to be careful because you can overdo it yeah. as somebody who'd been starving for quite a while. And, uh, but they brought me this tray of food and that had, you know, root crops and all this stuff. Every single one was just incredible. I'm telling you, I felt like uh, in a general sense, I felt like all of my senses were plugged into an electric socket. Everything was like day glow colors almost, you know, anything that wasn't blue red, red flower, anything was, was like mind blowing. And I <laughs> could just, and even the, like I, when I was in the room, there was a guy down in the kitchen of the hospital washing dishes and stuff and singing beautiful voice. And just to hear that was just like, uh, bring tears to my eyes. It was just incredible. Um, all these, all these miracles we're surrounded with all the time that we don't appreciate, you know, and I certainly was appreciating everything. And um, so, but the anesthesiologist at the hospital who was from France and she had heard I had landed, I guess there was a bit of hubbub around about this weirdo who came across the ocean. And she invited me to her home that night for dinner. And she came very kindly with a basket of food and stuff to the hospital in case I couldn't move. I said, no, no, I want to get out of here. I want to, I want to go. I want to have life, you know? Yeah. And uh, so she took me back to their place, which was wonderful. I had ratatouille, incredible. Um, took a hot shower the next day, you know, it was like the next morning, uh, you know, looking like Robinson Crusoe, cut my beard you know, all that stuff. Um, it, it was fantastic to be amongst people, to have luxury, to have a comfy place to sleep that wasn't wet, <laughs> you know, all of that simple things, but just great stuff. Are you able to channel that a little bit? You know, you go out into the fields and you see a red flower or you're, you know, there's an, the sun's coming through your window, hitting you as you're asleep in your bed in the morning. And can you sort of remember uh, that moment sort of channel it and, and get back to it a little bit 
uh, to some extent. A certain degree. I mean, like I say, everything fades in time. You know, you start grumbling about the same old stuff and, and, and things like that. There is a part of me that, just like I had different voices in on the boat, there are different voices in my head all the time, too. I mean, maybe I'm the schizophrenic, I don't know. But they, you know, they can remind me. They can remind me when I take a shower about how much water I'm using that's going down the drain. Um, that you know, just snuggling up to my wife at night, you know, what a luxury that is and, um, and how blessed I am. So, um, yeah, talking about it, actually, sometimes right now I'm feeling pretty teary eyed. Sometimes, um, I had a couple of guys out here. Um, I don't know, it's probably three or four, four years ago, I guess something, there's a documentary being produced about adrift now. And uh, he was out here filming stuff. And at the time I had the log and all that stuff and I hadn't looked at it in, you know, 30 years, 40, whatever it is. And uh, so he had me reading bits and pieces out of it. And it took me emotionally, it, it takes me right back there. I can, I can be back there sometimes. I don't really, like I say, I like, you know, I, I appreciate being able to talk about the story of drift, about the things of value that I, witnessed and and um and felt about it but i don't want to be there either um uh because it really was a, a view of heaven from a seat in hell in, in many ways so um yes and no <laughs> yeah no i i was just hoping that you could pull some of the heaven across with you through your life has, oh definitely has definitely your... when i get teary-eyed it's not because i'm unhappy it's because i recognize uh, this this is something that really changed for me when i came back and i saw two people just relating in in a way holding hands in a touching way um people being kind to one another those are the things that really move me and mm -hmm. take me back to the opposite of that, that I, that, that was in the raft that, mm -hmm. that, that really gave me a perspective of what is, is of real value. Mm -hmm. Can I ask when you, when you first were con uh, interacting with people, the conversations you were you having were you just flowing in words or or was it hard to start talking again after 76 days of not speaking to anyone no i you know i never really was you know i hated talking in public I and mean, even getting up in a group of four or five people and saying anything was petrifying to me but um i think i've always been a bit a bit of a blabbermouth and uh yeah <laughs> You know, well, you tell a good story. People are off, people are often, you know, kind of shocked by single-handed sailors because, you know, we go off in periods of fairly long periods of time being alone, uh, but we're all pretty gregarious when we get together, you know, around the the bar or whatever. And uh, I was so delighted to be back on terra firma to not have any wants and to, to you know people were being very kind to me and and all of that so i was happy to talk about it and and did mm. so following the event 
where have you been? <laughs> you, you you got back you got back into the boats, and and you carried on. So what what what's the the furthest you traveled? What's your favorite trip? What's your oh, geez, that's impossible to say. Um, I, I don't rank things like that. I I I, lo I love different experiences, and some of them are just fantastic experience. Sailing across the Pacific with my friend Russell and his proa was definitely a highlight of my life. It's a very very simple boat, uh, basically an ocean going canoe, and uh, it's something that people hadn't really done before. I've done a number of things, big some of them bigger things, some of them quite tiny things that fewer very few people or maybe nobody's done before. Um, Life of Pi is a perfect example. I mean, it was mm. a film that three directors kind of gave up that Hollywood thought was quote unfilmable. And, uh, you know, we were doing a lot of things that the joke on the set was, um, well, um, the, the adage in the movie business is never make a movie with with kids, animals or on the water. So we're doing all three <laughs> and in 3D, which was kind of a new tech, newish technology. You know, so there were lots of challenges doing that. Uh, that was wonderful doing something being involved with such a huge project that an individual can never do. That is a very collaborative effort and uh uh, anything can go wrong. Any one thing can go wrong. One person not giving it a their all can screw up the whole project, but it amazingly comes together. Writing Adrift, doing that, even doing the, the, the tours, which I thought I was going to be really freaked out and horrified by. Um, I learned a lot from that. Um, I came back, basically, I, a, a guy who um, I'd been employed with part-time before I, I was doing my own designs and working in a design office and teaching design. And he offered me that job back. So I, I came back and I was working with him part-time, writing the book part-time, living in dire poverty all the time for another four or five years. Um, I met my wife. We, that in itself has just been incredible voyage. Uh, she's my best mate, both on shore and off. Um, I started writing a lot more, uh, covering um, uh, maritime stuff, single-handed sailing, leading technologies, all this stuff. I'm 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 interested both in the the technical aspects of things and the conceptual aspects of things, and I kind of combine them. Um, and that took me all over the world, uh, interviewing really incredible people, doing amazing work. Um, I don't know; it just goes on and on. I've had this happened to me when I, I've, I've been through serious illnesses. Um, uh, I, the last one was, was waiting my way through leukemia, which is kind of a gift that keeps on giving. Um, I've been close to death. I'm the only survivor of a particular uh, uh, trial, uh, clinical trial. Um, so I've seen a lot. Uh, for for a guy uh, my age and you know a lot of it's been difficult and a lot of it's been wonderful but even the difficult bits have uh, given me a lot um, so no regrets on this end for sure has it uh, has your outlook been sort of forever shifted by this event uh, in in you know your survival of uh, leukemia in this clinical trial for example do you think your perspective was useful there? Or? Oh, absolutely. A lot of parallels. 
and that's, you know, overall, a, a lot of what I've done, um, both in a kind of techie specific way, I've, I've done a lot of work with um, safety, survival and seamanship in, mm-hmm. in my field. Um, but it's also taken me outside of my field. I've been involved with uh, uh, all kinds of survivors, people who've been, um, oh, let's say, uh, I, just a smattering, uh, a film crew that crashed into a volcano, uh, people buried by avalanches, uh, people who live in, in abusive homes. I uh, got involved with a, um, uh, a children's home that deals with youth at risk uh, everything from, you know, uh, classroom bullies and in gangs to kids who are be- really badly abused at young ages. Um, I- I've I've seen all of these things and learned a lot. And the more I see, uh, the more I realize that we're all kind of in the same boat all the time. I and mean, we just don't always realize it because it's not so critical all the time. And so yeah, my perspective was changed for sure. And I'm very happy in many ways that I went through uh, the drifting experience at age 30 because life is full of these challenges. Nobody gets, as I said, nobody gets out of here alive. And in whether it's psychological survival, physical survival, emotional survival, we all go through the same thing. And that's something else that Kathy, my wife, you know, brilliantly said while I was writing a drift. She says, just remember, we don't all have the same experiences, but we all have the same feelings. And it's true. We go through the same stuff. So, yeah, I learned a lot that was really valuable for the rest of my life. I knew the difference. I still know the difference between you know, wants and needs. And that's a, that's an important thing to know. Um, and what I can get away, you know, what I can do and what I can't do and what is important to, you know, focus on and, and what I can give up. Um, not that I'm always good at, at that, but, you know, at least the lessons are there and I can go back to it. If it, it, for a sort of a final wrap up message, if if you have some insight on, you know, for, for people who are going through a rough patch. So, you know, in Corona times, for example, there's a lot of depression. People are going through different troubles, losing their jobs, things like this. In, in general, for people who are going through something where they don't think they can continue or where they're really, you know, getting piled on by the, the world in, in, in some way, you know, everyone else, everyone's got their own sort of things to do with. Do you have any advice for people sort of, going through hell. Um, as Winston Churchill so once brilliantly put it, when going through hell, keep going. Put one step in front of the other. Um, we, as, as I've said, you know, no survivor I've met has ever thought at the beginning that they were definitely going to make it. That, in fact, few of us do. Most of us think, well, this is it. We're kind of screwed here. And, but... Despite that, we put that aside. We keep, we have the goal, the end goal in mind, but we don't, it's not fixed, first of all, because life is going to take us a different kind of way and might take us to a surprising end that might be completely different from our goal. But even with my goal being the islands, you don't, I, I have it in mind, but what I'm focusing on is where I am. It's a very present kind of thing, you know, dealing with what I have to do right now. And what are 
what is the achievable step that really becomes the whole focus in a way it's kind of a zen a very zen like existence where the past yes you have that vision of the past and everything and but you know what you can put it aside because it is past you're not going to do anything about that there is a future but you're not there yet what is it that i can achieve now that will be positive and get me towards that direction and touching the void you know a guy falls into this crevasse he's all broken up he needs to get down the mountain but he's not thinking about oh the whole way down the mountain what am i going to do after that he's focusing how do i get to the next rock down the hill mm. and that's that's the same with me and that's the same with attacking any large project or 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 anything we have the goal in mind but we really want to reach the achievable goal right right now and if you just keep doing it time stacks up that stacks up also forgive yourself sometimes you're going to fail mm. Sometimes it's going to screw up and don't be afraid to say, oh, okay, fine. It's, you know, I screwed up. I made a mistake. Um, uh, one of the wealthiest men I ever personally knew said that he says, I learned a long time ago, except when you've made a mistake and cut your losses right there. <laughs> it's a hard thing to do because it's like playing poker. You know, do I take another card and stay in for another round? And maybe that will be the card, but you know, all great poker players know what the chances are. And it's like, nope, that's it. I'm done, you know, and um, so it's the same way with same way with life in in survival in particular. Escaped sapiens.